Why is fake news and conspiracy so captivating? And how does our shared tribal psychology make us more susceptible to misinformation and ethical blindness? In this conversation, I speak with Philipp Hubel, who's a visiting professor in philosophy and cultural studies at the Universität der Kunste in Berlin. We discuss the role that a shared morality plays in shaping our society, the connection between morality and our emotions, and the spread of political division and fake news. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. These conversations are supported by the Andrea von Braun Foundation. If you enjoy what I'm doing, please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing this content. And now, I'm pleased to bring you Philipp Hubel. I hope you enjoy. Escape Sapiens. So I have to, first of all, thank you for being the very first person to come face to face for one of these interviews. Uh, it takes courage. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah. So welcome on the podcast. Thanks. I want to start off with, since you teach philosophy, what I want to know is, do you have any questions, moral dilemma questions that you really enjoy asking the students? Uh, many of them. One is um, a couple of questions actually posed by moral psychologists who uh, want to find out why people give sort, certain moral judgments. And one is made up by Jesse Graham and Jonathan Haidt, two uh, influential moral psychologists, and they did an experiment. They asked, um, they used to, uh, harmless taboo stories and asked people about what they think about the story. And one story goes like this, sh short version, there's a, um, a, a couple like uh, there are siblings a male and a female sibling they're adults and uh, they both cannot have children but on a summer day they decide to have sex as adults and as siblings and nobody knows about this nobody will ever find out uh, they do it just one time and uh, it brings them closer together they're not traumatized or anything by it and now you ask the uh, subjects in your experiment is it morally reprehensible what they did or is it morally okay what they did and many people the majority say no it's not okay what they what they have done and then they ask the sub subjects so why is that what is the reason why is it not okay what they've done and then they make up uh, reasons why it's on why it's not okay and that these reasons typically involve harm they say what if uh, a child comes out of this sexual intercourse and then they say no but this is in this experiment is excluded it cannot happen mm -hmm. what if someone knows about this no nobody will ever find out and then people in the end say something like um, well I cannot explain it I cannot give a rational explanation why it's wrong but it feels wrong mm -hmm. and this is interesting because people uh, it shows that we quite often probably we make a moral judgment about a, a certain violation without having a rational principle, a general principle that sort of can explain why we find it's wrong. And even more interesting, when the, you talk to these people a long time, uh, some of them say, I think 20 or 30% changed their mind. So it also shows not only that first we are very sort of, we have basic probably emotional inclinations that give us sort of a moral gut feeling and we cannot even explain it. This is surprising. But also there's some hope that you can change um, your view if someone gives you rational arguments and in the end you find out maybe I have this feeling that's wrong, but if I really think about it rationally, mm. then it doesn't seem to be so wrong at all. 
Do you, do you still get surprised by the students' answers, or, or are you at a point now in your career where you can be pretty sure of the sort of the space of answers that you're going to get from people? I have to say that with this experiment, I did this quite often in seminars, and very often people, uh, the majority says it's wrong, and in the end of the seminar, if you do it again after having 10 or 12 sessions on moral psychology or moral philosophy, uh, people change, most of them ch actually change their minds. But there are some other uh, examples, the famous trolley cases, where people have very different intuitions and people sometimes have, uh, even in the classroom, you're surprised that sometimes people say it's, it's a clear case of this and that or it's mm -hmm. a clear case of the other side. So it's not so clear cut, I think, um, always straight away. Yeah. But can you, for example, so if you knew a little bit about me, my educational background, yeah. you, knew, you knew what sex I am, what gender I am and so forth, could you be reasonably sure that you'd know, you know, I also come from the West, what my response would be? How, how much, how well can you predict? I think it's pr very hard to predict on single cases because individuals are so complex. But if you do predictions on average, you could say, for example, that uh, in the West, people are not as much appalled by these taboo violations as mm. in other parts of uh, the world. So there are many studies now, cross-culturally, worldwide studies on morals. And you could, for example, show that um, all the topics that surround the idea of purity, sanctity, and holiness, so that, that there are some acts which are impure, um, for example, one typical example is, and other acts are pure. Mm -hmm. So one example is, in many countries, heterosexual uh, sex between a married couple is morally okay. It's it's sort of a, an idea of pure love or mm -hmm. real love or nat a natural uh, conjunction or natural um, situation. Whereas um, other forms of sexuality, say, uh, masturbation, hmm. homosexuality, um, uh, hookup culture are deemed as unnatural or at least as not pure or not clean. We, we know this from even in the West from very religious people, people on the right uh, in, in Western countries think ten, tend to be more, for example, more homophobic. But in other parts of the world, it's more common to think of certain sexual acts as morally wrong, whereas we in the West tend to think that sexuality in most parts, as, as long as nobody's hurt, is, an, is a sort of an expression of ourselves or a, a part of our autonomy and should be uh, up to the individuals who engage in intercourse. So it makes me wonder, what's the function of morality because when you bring up examples like masturbation yeah where in my mind it's pretty clear that that doesn't hurt anyone yeah i can't even think of examples where that might be harmful to people yeah at least when you're on your own yeah you know, if you do it too often can be harmful <laughs> too, too yeah. often or in the wrong places perhaps yeah. but so is what, what what's the function of morality and why are there these standout cases that don't seem to have any function at all. Yeah, so of course it's a big question and you can only sort of uh, hint at the answer. But there's s some idea in sort of evolutionary psychology to think of morality more like an adaption of mm. uh, the human mind 
and some parts of morality, of course, are uh, provided by culture. But um, if you contrast this with ethics, I think you get a good view why sometimes everyday morality is, seems to us strange mm -hmm. and maybe to others our morality seems strange. So in ethics, in the sort of the signs of morality in philosophy, you want to find universal principles of our morals from which you can deduce the morality or the moral status of particular actions. So you have universal principles, say the human rights, and every time someone does something, you ask yourself, uh, is, that in, is this in accordance with the human rights or in, in accordance with the law? Mm. And if not, um, it's sort of a non-moral act that we should sanction and even, mm. uh, yeah, sa sanction in some way or other. And But if you look at everyday morality, it's more messy. Of course, mm. we don't judge from universal principles as Immanuel Kant uh, would have proposed. We, we don't do this in everyday life. We have more like uh, an everyday morality. And then mm. the research shows that this is very often influenced by our moral, uh, emotion, sorry, our emotional dispositions we have. Mm. And these moral uh, emotional dispositions make us inclined mm. to judge certain acts as immoral, even if they are on second looks not immoral at all. And uh, everybody agrees worldwide that if a harm comes to a person, that's false. So if I kill someone, that's a harm. Or if I take something away from him or her, if I rob someone, or if I hit someone, this is obviously a harm. Or insult someone, this is a harm. And this is sort of banned in every society. It's almost never okay to do this. But if you look at violations that are more against the community, or against these purity or sanctity rules, these are really um, not so individualistic. You cannot really say that a, an individual is harmed, but it's more that um, the principles of the community are harmed or even principles of purity. And then when we come back to this case of masturbation, of course, when you look at the Western societies who look at autonomy as mm. their main sort of mm. Uh, moral value, you would say an autonomous, uh, autonomous person can do whatever he or she wants with his or her body. But if you look at other cultures where you say we have a certain idea of purity and sanctity of acts, and if you do this and you touch yourself, it's a bit more like animal-like behavior. Mm. It's not pure because you don't use your sexuality to have children, but only to pleasure yourself. Mm -hmm. Even Immanuel Kant said you use yourself as an object. He was against masturbation as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not so uncommon even in, in the Western tradition. Then you, you think there's, there's a certain other principle that is violated. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we are very individualistic in the West. For, for us, self-expression is very important mm -hmm. and individual autonomy. This is why we sometimes find it very strange that people have rules that, for, for example, are very community-based in, in many uh, cultures. It's important to do what the parents say. Mm. We, of course, value our parents, but we choose a career path that fits our interests, not our parents' interests, mm. or uh, disobeying higher authorities is very important in some countries. Uh, say, in the Arab world, you have to be very respectful in front of the elderly mm. and it would be nice if we had uh, uh, if we had the same 
here in Germany or in, in the Western world, but we are not as respectful when it comes to age. If someone has merit, mm. we are more respectful, but if someone's just old, that gives not a special, um, that, that doesn't afford a special mm. treatment when it comes to moral respect. So these are sort of the, the differences. Is it more autonomy, community, or sanctity? And community and sanctity is more in the non-Western countries. Autonomy is more important in the more Western countries. And, and if I may add, the, 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 all societies move towards this more individualistic culture. So there's a lot of research from uh, Ingelhardt. Ronald Ingelhardt was one of the leading political scientists, one of the most quoted scientists, and he made up the World Value Survey. For 40 years, uh, he and his colleagues did research on the values of all areas of the world, mm. all countries of the world, and they found out that all cultural areas or countries or um, groups tend to um, tend to do two movements once they become more industrialized mm. and more uh, that we become richer as countries. So one movement is they're going uh, um, away from um, religious rules mm. that govern everyday life into more like a secular view mm. of the world where religion is still part of society but not dominating the rules mm. of society, so more secular like we had in the West. And the other movement is going away from these more community-like mm. um, collectivist uh, rules that give you a certain place in the collective, in the family or in the society towards more self-expression values, towards more individualism. So uh, in collective societies, materialism is more important to be safe, to have enough to eat, to, to have a shelter, to have access to water. And if this all is secured, people can be more expressive, they can do more what they want, and they become more individualistic. And this movement you can see um, uh, even in the very authoritarian areas of the world, China or the Arab world, which are uh, more authoritarian than, say, uh, the Scandinavian countries, even when you look at the young generation there, they are more individualistic already and more secular than the generation before and before. So the, the West then is not an anomaly. You, you expect that as time goes on that cultures become more and more Western as they control their external circumstances. Yeah, I, I, I think even the, the dichotomy, dichotomy between Western and Eastern or global North and global South is misleading mm -hmm. because it's, uh, it suggests that certain values are um, values that are Western in itself mm -hmm. only because they were developed or formulated or um, written down in a Western country. So a good counterexample is the um, um, the Declaration of Human Rights mm -hmm. is something that is certainly formulated and written down in the Western mm -hmm. cultural area, but almost all countries um, signed the Declaration and believe in human rights. So it's not a Western idea to have equality and fairness and um, protection from um, 
wrongful prosecution, mm -hmm. uh, uh, discrimination by gender, race, ethnicity, and so on. I mean, these are sort of universal rights everybody has, even if they are sort of uh, discovered, so to say, in the West. It's a bit like saying that mathematics is Indian <laughs> because in India or it's uh, Persian because in these areas or Sumerian because in these areas the first mathematicians yeah. um, put down uh, uh, or, or Greek because uh, geometry is Greek because of Euclid. It's a, it's a bit, um, yeah, it's a strange assumption. And but the, but the view can, can be can be made for for this. Um, there's an anthropologist who says um, the Western countries are weird countries, and it's an um, acronym for Western educated industrialized rich democracies. And mm. he says whole psychology is actually Hendrik is his name Henrich Henrich geschrieben. Mm. I think Henrik is the pronunciation, and he wrote actually a book about the cultural evolution of the West and how we became so weird, what's different mm. for, for the Westerners. And uh, he made the observation that we, when we look at certain, when we do certain um, experiments in psychology, we always ask grad students from uh, elite institutions uh, at the coast of the US. And then we sort of extrapolate or uh, infer from these samples to the mental setup of the mm. whole world population, which, which of course is wrong. And now when we look at these experiments done again in other areas of the world, we find a lot of variance. But in fact, there's a tendency towards more individualism when people and societies become more secure. So in, in a sense, certain moral systems are an answer to a environment. Mm -hmm. And if you have an environment that's dangerous, sc food scarcity, uh, uh, in, infectious diseases, uh, violent people on the streets, mm. you tend to be more conservative you, mm. and traditional because you stick more to your own, you're a bit more careful, you're, you're wary of your surroundings mm. and you're um, also more loyal to your group and you, you want to have um, rules and structure. You cannot be so liberal and open because it's mm. dangerous. The more secure the environment is, the easier it is to be very open when it comes to sexuality, to mm. uh, immigration, to new ideas, uh, to uh, new food, new people. Mm. You can try out anything because it's secure. Otherwise, it's better as a strategy to, to stick mm. to your own. So you can think of uh, morality as sort of a, a tool of cohesion within a group. And so the question then comes along, when you meet someone who has a different moral system to yeah. yourself, should you then try to empathize along those lines, even if they believe in things that you may think are morally abhorrent, if you know that it's there in, as sort of a defense mechanism, yeah. does that give you a new perspective on, on how you should treat the different morals of different groups, even if you think they're, they might be horrible? Yeah, it's really hard to... Um, the first thing is it's really hard to change your own moral view because we have something like a moral identity and we want to, pro as you said, it, you want, we want to protect it. So we have this identity protective cognition that uh, I have a certain worldview and if now someone say, I think I'm pro-immigration because I think it's great, it's culturally, cultural exchange. Now someone 
confronts we, me with uh, the disadvantages of immigration. He says, look at the the criminal rate is going up. Um, there's a sort of it's um, a stress to our social system. Um, he, he lists all these sort of disadvantages. And in, in a rational discourse, I would weigh pros and cons and find sort of a, a mid, mid ground. Mm -hmm. But if I have a strong moral view on this topic, it could be any other topic, I just chose this one, then I'm, I, I will tend to um, oppose this um, uh, challenge mm -hmm. from my opponent, and either I oppose it by saying, "Well, it's not true. I don't believe you," or it's uh, you exaggerate, or I might even uh, attack his or mm -hmm. her character because I might say, "You are only saying this because you are um, you hate foreigners, mm -hmm. or you're racist, or you're right wing, and this is why I don't talk to you." So it's really typical that people, when they are challenged in their moral views, that they um, tend rather to um, oppose the mm -hmm. challenge as uh, to um, weigh mm -hmm. the different arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, in an ideal rational discourse, you, you would always weigh the arguments. Is that because in a certain sense, morality, you said that morality sort of derives from some emotional set in your personality. Yeah. And so because of that, and the, you want to signal it in some sense to yeah. the group, right? Yeah. And so it, it makes sense to blurt out what you think is the correct answer. Yeah. You don't want to show that you're wavering. You want to show that you're standing. It's yeah. sort of like, um, it's a virtue signaling, signaling yeah. or something along these lines. I it? think this is an additional effect so even if you don't virtual signal if nobody else is watching you still have a very strong moral identity mm -hmm. and even if you talk to someone and nobody's watching you want to protect your mm -hmm. uh, moral identity and it's uh, hard to to change the view because mm -hmm. it's part of I don't even think that's oh, that my morals only de derive from emotions or emotional dispositions sentiments as mm -hmm. we say it in, in philosophy I think we have a dual system we have our moral emotions sentiments but we also have what we have learned and we have reflection and we can change our morals. It sometimes happens. People become vegetarian or mm -hmm. people used to be homophobic and then think about it and after a while they are less homophobic. And moral progress is only possible because we, we and our parents or grandparents somewhere along the lines changed their view mm. from a more, say, narrow moral view to a more universalistic or liberal moral view. But um, what sort of adds to this identity protective cognition is that if I think people are watching me or my group is sort of behind me, especially in social media where everybody can see the interaction, I have to have two interactions. First, I'm talking to my opponent. Mm -hmm. And second, I know I'm sending signals to other people watching me. Mm. So and then I'm in the very often in a um, dilemma, maybe I and say maybe I find it convincing that 50% what he or she is saying is not so wrong and I'm maybe even on the verge of changing my mind in a certain position but then I know I have to send unambiguous signals yeah. to my friends and my group even if it's a virtual group and I haven't, haven't really met them but I imagine this group watching me and I want to send very clear signals to them so I will tend to 
as you put it, I will stand, uh, tend to stand my ground and be even more extreme in my views mm. to leave nothing to interpretation. And this is a dynamic you find, especially on social media, that is one explanation for a sort of a tribal discourse, mm. maybe not tribal tribalism or maybe not polarization in the real world, but at least in the way we present ourselves in the self-presentation in, yeah. in the public discourse, that people tend to exaggerate their position and the positions became, become more polarized, although everybody started quite narrow, but then you have to be a bit more extreme mm. than the other. And then you have something that's sometimes called virtue signaling or even more recent now moral grandstanding, mm. sort of a, a, a display of moral judgment, not to solve a moral problem or to discuss a moral problem, but only to present yourself towards others. It makes me wonder about, since this is sort of a, a signal, Yeah. You know, peacocks have this huge yeah. <laughs> tail, which is costly. Um, it's costly. Signal, it, it, yeah. It's a costly signal. And if this is a, if, if you're by your moral position and, and by your sort of quick response and, and uh, cu cutting away sort of logical arguments, but really focusing on the the emotional un underpinning. I wonder if then there's some sort of value uh, or, or, or whether there's sort of a push towards ideas that are in some sense crazy. Yeah. Because then you're you're showing the group you're willing. Yeah. <laughs> Is there something along these lines? Yeah, it's exactly what costly signaling theory says. So they are, it's still disputed whether um, what, what are the mechanisms of um, um, say status display. But one theory, costly signaling, says um, if 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 a if I if for example in, in in the animal kingdom, if a if a male wants to impress the female, mm. when it comes to sexual selection, this is a second mechanism towards natural selection. Darwin said there's natural selection, mm. survival of the fittest. But also he he's observed that there are some um, traits that doesn't they don't really uh, they're not very helpful for natural selection. Mm -hmm. The peacock is the best example. It has long feathers, makes the peacock very slow when predators arrive. So why is it good for the peacock to have long feathers? And um, Darwin suspected that it has to do with sexual selection. The long feathers signal the female that this that he is a very strong mm. um, um, uh, exemplar of his species, and he can afford the long feathers um, so he's so strong and so can fly so fast that even with the long feathers um, he is uh, fit um, and this signal sort of impresses apparently the female peacock and then you can now extend this idea towards um, and this was done towards anthropology and you can ask why do we um, sometimes in religions say absurd stuff and people really adhere to these absurd principles. And one explanation could be, well, I signal to my peer group that I'm first very committed hmm. because I believe what you believe. And I'm even so committed that I do stuff that is hurtful. For example, initiation, right? Read? Mm -hmm. Right. 
nation right where I have to uh, endure pain or whatever, or which mm. is really dangerous. This is sort of a signal. But also if I believe stuff that everybody else would say it's mm. crazy. So there's a burning bush that talks to me. And nobody, we know bushes cannot talk and burning bushes cannot talk either. So it's really crazy to believe that a burning bush can talk to me. But in the Bible, there's this one part where the bush talks to Moses. And um, uh, so in taking this literally, I can really send a very strong commitment signal, loyalty mm. signal to my peer group. I'm willing to say this, although people will laugh at me if they're not in my group, because I'm so committed to the group. And then you can extend this. And sometimes you have other moral groups who have extreme views on the world, but you, you sort of, they are more accepted because they are taken as signal of belonging. And it's important for human beings to belong to a group. You said uh, a while back that it's hard for people to change their morals. But yeah. When you change groups, you know you, you want to belong to the new group. In those circumstances, is it, uh, so? For example, you join the military and now you go off yeah. and shoot people. Um, yeah. How how, qui how quickly do mor morals change once you, you change your s surroundings? And how far away oh, is any member of society from committing sort of moral atrocities on large scale? You know, how how quick can we be pushed into? Um, I mean, there's a lot of research on violence. And a military is a very good, I think, a very good example. Um, I went to the military, German military training, so the basic. It was compulsory. Uh, it was compulsory in my age. You could cho choose civil service, mm -hmm. but I, for, for, for reason, not because of commitment, but because it was shorter, I chose military service. And I, I read, I think it was Goffman, so a sociologist who talked about the change of cynical behavior to authentic behavior. And the idea is that first, if you're in a new group, you have certain rules, you do it because you have to do it. So shining your shoes, getting uh, into line. And we, we all did this um, sort of with a ironic distance. Mm -hmm. um, but after a while, I observed that two months later, many of the other soldiers, the young kids, boys, uh, they, they internalized 100% these rules. And they were even sometimes sort of accusing me that I was lying in the bed because I wasn't allowed to lie in the bed or that my shoes were dirty. And I thought two months ago, we all found this so ridiculous, we made jokes about it. But two months later, what I just read a year ago in Goffman, I think it was Goffman or some other sociologist, just happened there. And then you can see that these many studies people do on conformity and authority, um, the most famous study uh, is the Milgram experiment. Mm -hmm. It's sort of flawed for different reasons. We know now, we n now know, but follow-up experiments sort of basically showed that if there's an authority who says, I take responsibility, mm -hmm. people are much more willing to do morally brutal acts, even hurting others, even endangering their lives. And the same is true with conformity. If all the others in the group do the same. Mm. There's this famous experiment by Solomon Ash. Mm. Uh, so you're, you're in a room, there are 11 other people. You have to say there's a long and a short line and you see a third line and say, is it, is it the short or the long one? You're absolutely sure it's the short one, mm. but all the others say it's a long one. 
Yeah. Uh, and then if you're the last in the line, you people tend to say, oh yeah, it's, it's the long one. They, they, we don't really know whether they change their mind or whether they just say what everybody says not to be different from the group. But it really takes some character and some will mm. to oppose to the majority rule or the majority view. And if you take this together, you have, I think, two p puzzle parts to explain extreme forms of violence in genocides, for example, that people very quickly uh, are able to kill others. Normally, we have a tendency mm. um, not to kill others. We are very, um, it, it's really hard for us to harm others. But this sort of natural, uh, how would you say, the natural... Um, impediment we have or mm -hmm. s like a sensor like someone mm -hmm. someone in our head saying you shouldn't harm others mm -hmm. you can override this by by these mechanisms and, and the third mechanism which is sort of connects to what we talked before mm -hmm. is um, disgust so disgust is also moral emotion um, disgust is probably evolution from the evolutionary point of view a mechanism that uh, helps us to avoid contamination by uh, parasites or bacteria or viruses from rotten food or corpses or mm. people who have illnesses. But disgust is also a mechanism that can be used to in derogations. So you, I can compare my enemy with animals, vermin, uh, bacteria mm. or um, non-human entities to make them look subhuman or non-human mm. and then many experiments show it's easier then once you view the opposing group as non-human as not deserving of your respect mm. it's easier to apply force to them you make me worry that so with the experiment when, when the uh, people that were part of the experiment were saying that's the short line or that's the long line even contrary to what they were seeing <laughs> right yeah. in front of them it makes me wonder or worry what's bubbling under the surface in every society so my imagination is that no one really wants to commit genocide but it'd be hard to know that right if that's it could be that this is sort of like an underlying um feeling in the population that can be easily sparked yeah or it could be just a group phenomena is it do you think it's more the second yeah it's really hard to say i mean there's so many factors that uh, I mean, there's research in, in, in history and there's a lot of research uh, on areas of the world which are not governed by the rule of law. So this is sort of a factor that already Hobbes saw if you, have, uh, if you don't have a strong state that mm -hmm. enforces the rules by uh, police or military. Um, it's easier for people mm -hmm. to commit crimes because they don't fear punishment. Um, and the, also there are these group mechanisms. There are also uh, studies that show that it's easier in totalitarian systems for psychopaths to uh, mm. go through the ranks. So if you have, um, if you once you establish uh, a, a brutal dictatorship, people who are already prone to violence mm. and are just kept um, in check by, by the laws can now roam freely and use their uh, sadistic tendencies and they even get 
rewarded for mm -hmm. it. So there are many interlocking f factors. It's really hard to tell, but I think one important factor is is the surrounding. People change their view or their behavior in accordance to others, but also it gives us hope that some people are not uh, at all affected by this. Mm -hmm. So we, we know this from dissidents uh, during the National Socialist era who were not were totally against uh, the main view. Um, there are experiments that show when once a dissenting voice is raised against um, some, some, some um, action, people very often change their views because they're mm -hmm. undecided. There's always an undecided middle position. People who really don't really know and don't have a strong moral compass that guides them in one or another direction. So it's, um, yeah, it's a complicated phenomenon. So from what you've said, it, I, I, I picture that you, your view is that there is such a thing as moral progress, that you, yeah. you really can make absolute yeah. statements. Yeah. Um, there are other philosophers that say that's really not the case, right? Yeah, that, true. So, so how, why, why, why is it your position that, um, that you think, yeah. what, what's your defense of, of yeah, I don't have absolute a, statements? I don't have a good answer, to be honest. It's really hard, but I, I, um, it's really hard to argue for moral realism. So moral mm -hmm. re realism is the view that there are moral facts. So uh, it's a fact that two plus two is four, equals four, or it's a fact that uh, an electron is charged, has a negative charge, as you probably know better than <laughs> I do, and, uh, and a spin of a one half, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, I don't know what it means, but I, I just <laughs> <laughs> learned this. So, but the, the sort of, there are empirical facts mm -hmm. and there are mathematical facts. And of course, there are social facts like Paris is the capital of France, could mm -hmm. be other way around, it could, could be d different, but it's just a social fact of our time or that mm -hmm. certain colored paper counts as money is a social fact. Mm -hmm. And now you could say, probably there are also moral facts. So you, you shouldn't hurt someone just for pleasure. Mm -hmm. Probably is a moral fact. So, but now it's really hard to argue for this because you don't really know where this, what are the truth makers? Normally mm -hmm. you have uh, a sentence and you look somewhere else that makes the sentence true. So mm -hmm. for empirical facts, you look at the nature. Mm -hmm. And if nature is the way you describe it, you have a truth maker, nature makes the sentence true. And for mathematics, maybe you have an abstract realm of entities that makes mathema mathematical statements true. It's already very debated. It's harder mm. to argue for realism in mathematics. Mm. But then in moral reason, where does it come from? And some people say maybe it's um, sort of, it's uh, self-evident. Mm. If you're rational, it must be self-evident. And some people say, no, it's sort of a, um, maybe you have to derive it from from um, other facts mm. but it's really it's really hard but i think the intuition the basic intuition that there must be something i mean it's not i think my standard example is if if you talk to someone and say say look we are, we are driving on the right hand side in germany but in england we you drive on the left hand side but it's sort of a convention it could be other way around is no harm is done you can do it either way so mm. this is sort of a convention um, in the basic sense of convention. Mm -hmm. And you, it seems at first blush that morals are the same. We have just, we now say it's wrong to kill, mm -hmm. uh, to, to kill someone if he has 
um, raped someone else. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't have death penalty, but in other countries we do have it. Mm. So it's just a convention, in, like driving on the left and the right-hand side. But in a sense, um, this is not true because uh, we don't care about driving on the one side or the other, but we really care about <laughs> not killing someone. And it's not, um, we, we don't have the impression it could be mm. either way or it's just so, so, so morality demands universality as mm. Immanuel Kant has proposed in many others too. We, we think it's more like a universal principle that's mm. behind it, but it's really hard to put it in words. I don't have a good argument. I mm. always, I'm, I'm not even a moral philosopher, so I, I, I'm not an expert. I'm more an expert on, I work on um, the foundations of psychology. Mm -hmm. So moral psychology is more what I'm interested in. And, but even if I ask the top moral philosophers of my uh, uh, trade and ask them, what are your arguments? It's even really hard for them. It's, it's no, the, the last word is not spoken. You, you don't have a knockdown argument mm -hmm. that really moral facts exist. And the opposing camp is are moral relativists mm -hmm. who say, I mean, it's more, even more complicated because some people would say, well, moral statements cannot be true or false mm. because they don't have a truth well value um, but uh, the say the most extreme case is to say they're very relative morals are very relative and every society has them and then you cannot really talk about moral progress because it's just moral change mm. progress sort of somehow implies that it's better now mm. but whether it's better is up to debate for a relativist but i think even those people do not really leave, uh, live by their relativism. So um, they don't find it so, they don't find it right if I kill their children and then justify it by saying, look, I have a different morality, survival of the fittest. They were mm. not strong enough. Sort of, uh, we all have sort of an idea that certain kinds of harm are mm. false for some reason, even if we disagree on what exactly fairness is or justice is. We have these disagreements, but in the, in the sort of in the basic mm. outlook, we seem to have similar. So it's a long-winded answer to say, I don't really have an argument. It's more like an intuition pumping. Well, my intuition says that maybe the important thing is measurement, right? You might be able to say something along the lines of this set of moral rules in this circumstance for this society will make the society more successful. Yeah, and, and you might be able to make absolute statements like that. Maybe that's the best you can do. Yeah, but successful already is a um, ambiguous term. Mm -hmm. The problem is, um, if you want to um, deduce moral statements from natural statements, um, you have to to bridge a gap because statements about how the world is is statements don't have normative terms in them. So I can say, I can describe the world atom by atom, how the world is, but I don't know anything about how the world should be, ought to be, or what is good or bad. So if to, to, to go from a pure description of the world to a, a value, evaluation, mm. to use normative terms like good or bad, or fair or unfair, generous, or uh, what you ought to do, or um, what you should not do, mm. uh, I have to bridge this gap. And sometimes people try to argue from here to here. It's, mm. it's called the very typically called the naturalistic fallacy mm. by Moore. Moore said, 
you cannot derive ought from an is. It's actually David Hume already mm. had um, uh, a little passage in his writings where he said um, you cannot derive an ought statement from an is mm. statement. And there's, of course, some people say maybe you can. <laughs> you really look at the world. For example, emotions maybe have an evaluative aspect. Mm. So an emotion is something that just happens to you, but the emotion itself is evaluative because it says this is dangerous or this is good and maybe you can derive morals from these emotions this is a new movement emotion emotionism it's <laughs> called jesse prince is one of the uh, leading philosophers mm. who who has uh, written a whole book in arguing that this sh mm. maybe is possible um, but um, sometimes you're deceived by words like successful or natural mm -hmm. because successful can be used in a purely descriptive sense say uh, a species was successful because it survived and the other the was biomass not. biomass went up. Or yeah, it's just in a, in a quantitative yeah. natural sense. But you could also say successful has a normative feel to it, good mm. in the sense of good. And then the normative sense is something you add to it. It's more, it's more clear in the case of natural. So we mm. talked about this, what sexuality is, is natural, unnatural. Mm. So one in one sense, natural has a descriptive meaning if you say something like, um, a human being can only develop if a male and a female have intercourse, if, mm -hmm. a, if a, an egg and a sperm cell mm -hmm. uh, come together. So the natural, in the sense of what happens in nature, mm -hmm. process is this to get another human being. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes natural is then used in the normative sense where they, people say it's unnatural that there's homosexuality. And then they mean it not in the sense of the functional sense of mm. biology, but in the um, normative moral sense mm. of it's wrong, it's morally wrong. Or what they used to. Yeah, or they used to say this. Mm. Yeah, And I think many of these terms are double agents. Mm. So they, they you, you don't really realize that you change from one to the other. And maybe successful, it could be that this is a term that sort of has two sides, it's like a double agent too. For people in our society that, so if I, we have this moral framework that sort of, yeah. our, we sort of navigate through and it sort of pushes our society in different directions. What does that look like for people who don't feel emotions in the, in the normal way? So, so for example, if you, if you look at psychopaths in society, yeah. if, if, if our morals are really based on our emotions or some underlying set of emotions, is the world extremely confusing? Are the, is it really infuriating to be someone like a psychopath? Is this what leads to the murders? <laughs> yeah, know? it's a really tough question. I'm not an expert on psychopath, but uh, in a sense you could say they are morally diminished because they don't feel remorse as, as far as I know, sort of this is lay knowledge like mm -hmm. uh, from, from books. But um, if they don't feel remorse in the sense we feel and if they're not uh, if, it, if they don't have empathetic concern. So, so, so they have social intelligence, they can manipulate people, they know what they think, but they don't feel. Mm. So this is sometimes called empathetic concern, like mm. a, a feeling into the others. Mm. So social intelligence, yes, but not concern. And if they don't have this, and it's at the core of many of our judgments, if, we, if I see a kid crying, I, I'm trying to help the kid mm -hmm. or comfort mm -hmm. it or find the mother. If they don't have these natural impulses, they are, they are moral, emotional sort mm -hmm. of um, panoply 
is mm. diminished in a sense. Mm. Um, and sometimes you read that uh, like real psychopaths treat others more like objects, not as real mm. people with a full autonomous um, personality. So it could be that in a sense the world is not made for them, the moral world, because for them the world is a, a world of objects and some objects are talking and moving objects and others are uh, <laughs> non-moving objects. Um, but um, to, to be precise, you have to, uh, you have to know more about psychopaths. I, I'm not mm. sort of an expert on this. But there are, of course, some philosophers who say this is, if you, if you base everything on emotions, then a psychopath, of course, is a... Um, in a sense, not of like like a person who cannot uh, count. Mm. So mathematic mathematic is possible to learn, but if you have never learned how to count, mm. then you cannot acquire all the other mm -hmm. uh, strains of mathematics either. And maybe this person is just, or or maybe the person can count but not calculate a logarithm. Mm. So it has a certain limit towards his his or her mostly his. Um, moral expression. It's funny that you said his because <laughs> I was about yeah, to ask no, you. No, psychopaths are more. This, this I know from from what I'm from what I've read that they are more prevalent in uh, uh, among males than females. Well, I, it was sort of I wanted to ask. Um, you know, in our society, there's this whole idea. You know, men don't cry. People say yeah. that men have sort of a suppressed yeah. set of emotions, and yeah. uh, what? How does that play out? Morally speaking, uh, do males and females have very different moral systems? Can yeah. you measure the difference uh, by, for example, asking these moral dilemma questions? Yeah. How, how does that look? There are some, in some areas, there are differences. I think it would be a great project for, for a book to, 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 to gather all the experiments. I only know a few, mm. but one, ex uh, one clear difference you can find in social dominance orientation. So mm. people who are um, on the very right-wing extremist view, who also are more prone to violence, um, tend to have this social dominance orientation. It's a view of the world that there are some groups who are better than others, mm -hmm. and they don't even they even go so far to say then these lesser groups uh, you can even use force or even maybe violence, strong forms of violence to suppress these other groups mm. and um, the studies show that um, these um, sort of characteristic personality characteristic is much more uh, can be found more often among men than women it's mm -hmm. almost entirely made up of men the view that there are other groups who are not really worth mm. uh, uh, as worthy as worthy as as the own group whereas when you look at authoritarianism so that's the view that there should be an authority and either i'm the authority or if i'm not then i have to then i will go mm. into my position in the vertical hierarchy the mm. vertical social hierarchy and this is quite similar male and female and um it could be one reason why very extremist parties say right-wing populist parties have more male voters. It's mm. in Germany in the case, I think in the um, in in Austria and France, but in many countries you could see that the right-wing parties are more male and the m more progressive green parties have a bit more female mm. um, 
And um, if you look at personality traits, there's one personality trait called agreeableness. Mm -hmm. That means you like harmony, you don't like confrontation, you want to um, um, live in a a society of respect and you have a very strong tendency to empathy, empathetic concern. And this is um, significantly stronger among female Mm -hmm. subjects than male subjects. Mm -hmm. Uh, And empathy is sort of, Jesse Graham and Jonathan Haidt call it care, the care foundation. One of the moral foundations we have might be caring for those who are oppressed or marginalized or in need, for example, children or the elderly or people who are um, in in, um, marginalized groups. Mm. And this care foundation is fueled by empathetic concern for the mm. those who need our help. And this is maybe the reason why the left-wing parties have a bit more female supporters, mm. because this care foundation is a bit stronger um, in female subjects than in male subjects. This is one, mm. one difference. I don't really have a good segue into this, but just... Uh, I, would you be able to sort of flesh out the five personality, uh, you know, yeah. the big five? Because this sort of is related, but I, I don't really. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you test it? How do you know there are yeah. five? What, what is it? So there's a um, it's research on these big five personality traits. Um, there might be even more, six or seven, but mm-hmm. the research now, the most of the research is focused on five. And it started about 50 years ago or so. And the five personality traits are openness. They're, first, let me tell you, they're, they're called sometimes called ocean mm-hmm. um, traits or big five because there are five and ocean because of the first letters. So mm-hmm. o, o is openness, C is conscientiousness, extrovertedness, neuroticism, or you could call it also emotional instability mm-hmm. and agreeableness, A-N. And, um, so openness means you like new experiences. Conscientiousness means um, you are very dutiful and you like categorization and you are very on point and organized. Um, extrovertedness, of course, is you like to be the center of attention or you like to be among people. Agreeableness is you, that you are mainly um, have empathetic concern for others. And neuroticism more uh, emotional instability means that you are um, suffer from anxiety or depression mm. or ha- some other uh, mental problem mm. or the opposite if you're very stable you 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 don't care so much and you're not affected by other mm. people or uh, misfortune and, and so on and um, the research is done by asking people questions we all have done this probably sometime in our lives uh, either if we are in a if you want to go on a dating site sometimes they ask you these (laughs) questions sometimes they do tests for fun in the social media so you can ask people questions and very surprisingly they are very stable over your lifetime they change a little Mm -hmm. but quite stable so if you do something with 20 and then with 30 or 35 they're similar if you mm-hmm. answer them honestly mm-hmm. and you can also ask others so you, i could ask your friends uh, is he very open or is he very conscientious or is he very often late to appointments and doesn't care so much about being precise and uh, correct and they will say almost the same as you so mm-hmm. uh, first p- uh, person evaluation and third person evaluations as uh, converge are very similar you can test them 
you can test these uh, characteristics by consumer choices. They're correlated with um, academic success. They're correlated with um, um, life expectancy, drug use. Mm. They're all, all characterizations and about the variance you have among people as a strong so some people are very open some are not very open they're independent of one another and the variance of these traits um, is explained only by half by the environmental factors so there's a huge uh, study by Tinka Polderman it's called the mother of all studies she did a meta analysis of about 5,000 twin studies about heritability of certain traits and you can say that the, the, the differences, the variance among uh, the different uh, people uh, is determined only roughly, mm. half of it is determined by the environment. So you can say to a certain amount, can mm. put, you can, it's really hard to put a number on, but to a certain amount it must be um, heritable, uh, innate. Mm. So you get it from your parents. If your parents are very open, it's likely that you are above average open. Mm. And, um, uh, and some of these um, um, traits are also related to moral or political stances. Mm. So this, that's what makes them also interesting, not only to preferences for art or academics mm. or success in your profession, but mm. also with preferences with politics and one factor which is uh, has a strong connection to politics is openness. People mm -hmm. who are very open, they like the new stuff, they like new ideas, new people, new foods, they like to travel and arts. And as you can hear, they're more on the progressive liberal, mm -hmm. left liberal spectrum, if you look at the political affiliation. And um, the second uh, trait is conscientiousness. People who are very conscientious are um, st structures, mm -hmm. they like categorization, they adhere more to the status quo, they, they uh, value duty mm -hmm. and uh, they plan ahead. They have always, um, for everything, they have always a plan for everything what they do, they, they're not very spontaneous. And this is more correlated, not as strongly as openness, but more correlated with conservatism or traditionalism. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, since they're independent of one another, yeah, you I was can, wondering about this. Yeah, you Are can they really be independent? very <laughs> conscientious and very open at the same time. And I think um, the, the studies pretty much show that if you want to successful, you need both. Mm -hmm. So people who are very successful are very open. You need new mm -hmm. ideas. For example, in science, mm -hmm. you, have to, you need curiosity and you have to be open to new ideas and you want to find out something new. So you're interested in, the, in, in what is new, but also you have to be quite... Uh, dutiful and structured and ambitious yeah. to be successful in all areas of expertise, sports, arts, science, uh, business, whatever you do, you have to be very structured, dutiful, ambitious. And this is more conscientiousness. So you could have both, but if, if one is very high, openness is very high, conscientiousness is very low, then it's very likely that you are more like left-wing or left-liberal. And if it's the other way around, you're not very open, so you're very narrow-minded. Mm. You, you're not interested in what is new, but you're very structured and orderly. This mm. is sort of the typical yeah. um, conservative traditional voter. So does that mean that 
if you have a mix of the two, then there's not really very good political representation for you. You know, so scientists, for example. Yeah, interesting. Do they make terrible leaders? (laughs) No, I don't don't think. I mean, these are only tendencies. And Mm. uh, of course, you cannot really deduce anything from the average group Mm -hmm. differences towards the individual. You can have a very open conservative and a very narrow-minded liberal. Uh, but on average, you would find them uh, on on the other, the one or the other side. Um, but I think many people are um, in non-polarized countries like Germany. Many mm-hmm. people are uh, anyway. They are in the political middle area. So in Germany, I think about sixty percent say I'm in the middle mm-hmm. p- from the political point of view. They're not on the extremes and. Um, I think this is sort of a common place if you have um, if you don't have a two-party system. But uh, in the U.S., as when you compare it, where you have a two-party system, it's more likely that people are more polarized because you have to decide: I'm either I'm this group or that group. I cannot have a third. If I don't like this group, I have to choose the other, or mm. other way around. I cannot have a I have a don't have a third option mm. where I can. Um, refer to if I don't like both mm. groups and these uh, systems tend to be a bit more polarized mm. and the, the middle is a bit more thinner that people mm. say I have to decide and I think conformism and tribalism adds to this movement mm. f- away from the middle position towards mm. more extreme or out outside positions so the american system is in some sense set up to make people yell and scream at each other yeah you could say that i mean it's uh, but when you look at the the statistical data there's one famous question from the pew research center p p e w pew um and they ask about 10 policy questions to americans and they have done this now for 30 years or so and uh, the median of, of both groups um, t- um, on these policy questions, the Republicans and Democrats were very close to one another. Mm. And uh, many Democrats were right of the median of the Republics and many Republics left of the median of the Democrats. Ah. So they had a huge overlap. Mm. But within the last 10 or 15 years, maybe it has to do with social media, it's not clear, but could mm. be. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but it could be a factor. Uh, especially the um, the median of the Democrats moved way to the left, so mm. they became f- more progressive in a sense um, on these ten questions, and um, the Republican median didn't move mm-hmm. far. But you, what you could can see is that on the very outside, the right wing part of the Republican voters, there's a huge bulb now. Mm -hmm. So something like a backlash, you could really see first you have a progressive movement, you could call it the progressive revolution, everybody's Mm -hmm. becoming more progressive anyway, especially if you're on the left hand side, or the left liberal side of the political spectrum. And then maybe as a reaction, we, Mm. we don't know for sure, but it's very likely, at least one part of the Republicans became more extreme on these 10 issues mm-hmm. and this is a typical yeah it doesn't need to be like this it, it was different 20 years ago but apparently now um, 
the situation or well, at least for the last 10 or 15 years or so it's like this maybe this will be a mechanism uh, that will lead to you know generation of a new party or something you know so you yeah it could be i mean they're the independents but they're not uh, very influential at the moment i th guess they get five percent or so mm -hmm. so so is there really a moral difference i, I know you're probably going to say yes to this but is, yeah. there, is there really a moral difference between progressives and conservatives or is it just different targets so what i mean by that is you know m certain people might be disgusted or outraged if you were to burn the national flag for yeah. instance whereas other people might be outraged that you burn uh, the rainbow flag yeah so in other words is there a genuine difference or is it just different targets i i think uh both is true so mm -hmm. The, the difference is in values, but the values have different objects, mm -hmm. intentional objects. So if I, if I say that um, loyalty towards my group, say mm -hmm. towards my nation and the flag is important and you burn the flag, you violate this principle or mm -hmm. this moral foundation, or you could say you, you do something harmful, not to me as an individual, but to my principles I value mm. highly, namely loyalty to my country. And um, if you burn the rainbow flag for someone mm. who's on the left liberal side, he or she uh, might say, well, I have so certain moral principles, diversity and um, inclusion of different uh, sexual identities mm. that's very important to me if you burn the flag mm. of course nobody is hurt by burning the flag but you sort mm. of attack these principles mm. in there maybe as holy to me as your nation is holy to you so, so, so on this level I think we have just a competition of values mm. and the, the values are sort of the, the um, weighing of the values is just differently hmm. it's kind of interesting that you said well that we've been talking about moral systems being built on a foundation of emotions because and then politics being built on a foundation of morals because yeah. when you when people talk about anti-science yeah it's always the other side that's anti-science yeah. i've got i've got a list here because i'm going to forget them all but you know if you think anti-nuclear anti-gmo anti-evolutionary yeah. psychology flat earth climate change denial anti-evolution anti-vax so yeah. there's a whole list of them and you can throw them in the different camps yeah. um it, it, it is it true that it's it's sort of this is sort of bipartisan really isn't it it's it's not in, in the, the u.s i think i used to think that the um the conservatives are more anti-science anti and what, what happened to me is what's sometimes called a my side bias. Mm -hmm. So because I was reading only literature on cases where the conservatives uh, have sort of um, uh, moral investment, a certain identity they want to protect, and then they are against science. So for example, when it comes to climate change, it's a very obvious case. In all countries, the right-wing parties tend to deny or at least mm -hmm. belittle man-made climate change. But uh, then I read this fantastic book by Keith Stanovich. Um, it's a colleague of uh, Daniel Kahneman, sort mm -hmm. of a very influential psychologist. And he wrote this book, uh, The Bias That Divides Us. It's a recent book that came out. And he does exactly 
what you have done. He looks at all the different areas of science and then he shows, look, there's evidence that when it comes to the conservative moral identity, of course, uh, flat uh, um, uh, creationism and mm -hmm. denial of climate change, this is sort of the typical anti-science mm -hmm. uh, sentiment you find on the right-wing side or the conservative mm -hmm. side. But then when you look at research on uh, heritability of intelligence, mm -hmm. differences between men and women in mm -hmm. all areas in biology, um, uh, uh, e economic questions on the housing market, um, you find the same pattern only on the left-hand side, mm. because on the left-hand, uh, if you say something like men and women differ mm. in certain respects, and even from their biological makeup, they differ, mm. and we can show this with, uh, even if this is published in Science and Nature, which it, which it, which it is, uh, it sounds to some of them as if you want to um, justify differences in society between men. It sounds a bit as if you want to use science to justify um, inequality. Mm -hmm. And instead of um, uh, attacking this false inference from science to norms, the naturalistic mm -hmm. fallacy, people try to attack the, the factual statements, mm -hmm. which of course it's a bad maneuver. It's sort of the reverse natural, naturalistic fallacy because they, it supposes that this, what's found out in, in, uh, with empirical methods, um, has any saying on how we should live together, which it doesn't. But um, this is the reason why it sounds very often if you say something like, uh, to a certain extent, intelligence is heritable. Um, this sounds as if you want to justify mm. inequality in society that some people are more successful than others and so on. So um, you find exactly this and then you have uh, GMOs is a good example because this idea of naturalness and holiness, we know from religions that they have this idea that certain forms of sexuality or s certain forms of behavior are deemed natural and holy. Mm. But this a similar pattern you can find in the more esoteric left movement mm -hmm. that, for example, what is changed or unnatural in the biological realm cannot be good. So mm -hmm. that's the idea. If you change the genetic code of corn or mm. wheat, uh, you might do some, some harm because the natural uh, makeup is how it's supposed to be. So this is sometimes called Gaia thoughts. Mm -hmm. So the idea that there's nature as a mother earth, like a Gaia, like the goddess of, mm -hmm. of, of nurturing and the goddess of the earth, the personified earth, and she knows best. So the, the nature has all the solutions for our ailments and illnesses, and we shouldn't interfere with it. Mm. But medicine development of uh, vaccination and so on of course, was always intervention into nature, but this is sort of this a similar unscientific view of the world comparable mm. to people denying climate change because it sort of doesn't fit the ideology mm. or the, the picture we have of how the world should be or mm. is supposed to be.
this is sort of what I meant by the different targets. You, yeah. you have your different purity yeah. rituals. And Absolutely. But the, I want to get onto, you made me think, I want to get onto sanitation and antibiotics yeah. and, and liberalization. But before that, there's another way that morality sort of blinds us, right? Because if, if to give an example, when you when you are listening to people who don't like immigrants, for example, they yeah. don't like they don't like refugees coming in, yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, they don't like migration. Then the rage is usually focused on the immigrants, and individually, they're all very different people. Because yeah, they're individuals. Yeah. Whereas the rage is never pointed. I'm not placing any value judgments yeah. uh, on, on immigration. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm just saying the, the rage is never placed on, for example, the economic system, which might give rise to migration. It's, it's sort of really directed on individuals. Do you, is there sort of a clear way of understanding why that is? Um, I mean, there are different mechanisms, I think, at, at work. So one mechanism is that people who look differently and behave differently instill fear and sometimes even disgust mm -hmm. in 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 uh, they can instill fear and disgust in us and um it um is stronger with people who are already very uh, th th who are already not very open towards new experiences because then new people they have different languages different looks different uh, manners different mm. styles of communication this is sort of for someone who's not very open is sort of a um, challenge mm. and someone who's very cosmopolitan and open um, might not be such a challenge. But I think there are m many layers towards this problem. One is very often it's more like a proxy um, sentiment. So mm -hmm. it's not really that a person says I'm against immigrants because they, have, uh, they don't have my religion mm -hmm. or they have a dark skin, like pure first order racism. Mm -hmm but it's very often like a proxy for something else. So for example, they fear that the immigrants um, are dangerous or have morals very much uh, diverging from our morals. Mm -hmm. And this is not such an irrational fear because typically immigrants come from countries who are not as liberal and democratic as the countries they move to because the more liberal democratic mm -hmm. countries are more the richer countries. So. Um, and then we very often we tend to, and I used to do the same, we tend to judge someone only by his sentiments that he says, oh, I'm, I'm not so open when it comes to migration mm. without asking what the reasons are. Are the reasons that he doesn't, just doesn't like mm. um, foreigners? So this is sort of taste-based mm. uh, discrimination, which we all sort of uh, reject. Mm. Or is it something more complicated, something like uh, maybe the social system is not made for so many uh, immigrants or maybe um, he or she fears that mm. then the norms will be different. And uh, I think you can observe this when it comes to um, um, not hate, but sort of rejection of Muslim immigrants. Because uh, in Germany, for example, people don't worry too much about immigrants from Denmark, but even from Japan. So mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be, it could be the skin color because Danish look mm -hmm. similar to sort of native Germans. But um, when people come from East Asia, 
uh, Korea or Japan, people are not so um, skeptical. Mm-hmm. It's only that they become skeptical or more, it's more likely that they become skeptical mm-hmm. when people come from countries where they think, even falsely, mm-hmm. could be true or false, that these countries have more strict conservative mm-hmm. rules or that they don't, they're not as uh, gender equal as we want to have or that mm-hmm. they are against um, minorities or are not, don't, don't um, allow for religious freedom mm-hmm. and so on. So I think it's hard to, to put them apart and we tend to judge people too often just by say one statement mm-hmm. or one act without asking for the intentions or preferences mm-hmm. behind this because it's really hard to find the real preferences mm-hmm. and it's so, sort of um, a tendency we all have oh someone says he's he's skeptical of immigration he must be right right as a right in the sense yeah. of right wing <laughs> <laughs> not right. but maybe he's not right wing but has other concerns mm-hmm. and um and especially interesting is that, for example, in the U.S., Latin Americans are more skeptical of immigration than liberal whites. Mm. And uh, you could say, wait, well, um, many immigrants come from Middle mm. and South America to the U.S. And why are you more skeptical than the whites? But it could also be that um, in your everyday life, if you're a affluent liberal white at the coast, you will never really interact mm. and see a rivalry between you and the immigrants. Mm. But if you live in a village where then these people have to live until they can find mm. a job, or if you're in, a, in, a, in the job market, in a section where you have a strong rivalry mm. and new people come who are maybe more skilled than you are, or who can mm. offer their uh, labor at a lower price, and then a rivalry situation comes up, and then you're more inclined to say, mm, I don't want that. It's easier mm. to judge, to be cosmopolitan if you don't have to do any, anything to do with, mm. uh, with those people who you're very open. If you talk about virtue signaling, it's, you can be very open, but you don't have any skin in the game. You don't have to invest anything from your life into your political opinion you mm. can just have it you can broadcast it you can elevate your cosmopolitan status but you don't have to deal then with the everyday life mm-hmm. situations as others have to do so really you benefit you don't see any downside so it really makes sense because you're signaling to a different group yeah and um and it's always i think very often moral has also to do with status mm. um i call it the status game mm. uh, or yeah, like it's like a moral game. You also you want to broadcast your moral status to others, and mm. but uh, you don't you don't want to invest too much energy in broadcasting. Mm. So the ideal form is that everybody thinks you're mor- a good moral person <laughs> without you doing anything. And the opposite case is someone working every day, helping in like in a soup kitchen for uh, immigrants, but it's not broadcasting it at all. Mm-hmm. So that's the opposite case. So mm. investing a lot of energy and time maybe money or whatever, mm. investing something, especially time and effort, but not broadcasting it. And be, we tend to want to have a lot of broadcast and not so much effort. <laughs> and then it's easier to be yourself. There's one good example in Germany, there was a recent study about the wolf. So mm. in some areas, the wolf is now- It's uh, returning. It's returning. But all these areas, 
the more wolf sightings you have in an area, the more uh, the, the more likely is is this area to vote for right wing populists. Mm -hmm. There's a correlation. It's not maybe not causation, but there's at least a correlation. And then people f say, ah, oh, yeah, it's funny. It's sort of they fear the immigrants and they fear something <laughs> that's sort of foreign and now comes back and they. Sort of, a, it's a ridiculous fear, and in a sense, of course, um, it might be exaggerated. But also, in another sense, it's decided somewhere in Berlin, let the wolf come back into these areas. People who decide this don't live in these areas. They don't. They're not afraid to walk with their kids through the forest and maybe a wolf attack, even if it's super rare. They don't have sheep uh, uh, which are killed by the wolf. Uh, so the, all the negative mm -hmm. side effects of this decision, they don't have to deal with. So it's easy to be, oh, it's so nice to have a wolf, the animal comes back, and mm -hmm. so nature and uh, mm -hmm. in order again is so great. But you don't see that uh, people who are against this might be offended by this, that now mm -hmm. they have to deal with a the wolf they don't want. and it was decided somewhere else. And then the wolf becomes a proxy for the, um, not hate, but the sort of rejection of the system. So mm. the people reject the system and you could do the same with the wind mm. wheels, how do you call them? Uh, turbines. Yeah, the turbines. So mm. the turbines are typically in, in rural areas. They put the turbines everywhere there. The people don't like it, it doesn't look good, mm. but the energy goes to the city. Mm -hmm. So it's city people deciding that turbines are in front of in, in the in the beautiful landscape of people living there. Mm -hmm. So it's city against uh, mm -hmm. countryside. And many cases are like this that sort of uh, they might be a proxy partly, maybe mm -hmm. not. That's not the whole explanation, but partly they might be a proxy for something else. It makes me wonder this is this is actually quite nice because it allows me to jump into a topic from a direction that I, I didn't want to come in. Well, I didn't yeah. expect to come in from. So um, how important is lived experience in the sense that, uh, you know, people will often say, uh, for example, you're not allowed to talk about this topic yeah. because you don't belong to group A. Yeah. So here we have an example where we have some people of privilege who are... Um, for instance, they can signal to their in-group saying that, you know, I don't have any problem with this particular group of immigrants coming in. Yeah. They can make themselves look good. But as you said, the they don't have to compete. It's, it's all positives for them. And yeah. similarly with the, the wolf situation, um, it is it, it sort of has a flavor very similar to... Um, but the opposite of yeah. um, when people are saying, you know, you can't talk about this topic because you mm. haven't experienced this. What's your thought on the importance of lived experience when it comes to arguing? Should we really, do humans empathize and, or? or yeah, I'm not so sure. I, I think the, as far as I know from, from, from what I've read about this, I think there's, it's based on a, um, conceptual mistake, I mm -hmm. think. So the idea by the, from the lived experience is that some experiences, for example, marginalization or discrimination can only be experienced by individuals and these individuals have a certain 
uh, first-person authority about their experiences and of course I cannot have someone else's experience mm -hmm. and um, the idea is um, when we talk about topics like discrimination as some for me for example I've I can't even remember that I was ever discriminated mm -hmm. uh, against so since I have no first-hand experience mm -hmm. I can really talk about this topic and I think that the concept, so first I think there's a conceptual mistake because normally when we talk about moral evaluations, we say something like discrimination is bad. But why is it bad? Not because we, we make this judge, so we make this judgment not because we can, we have experienced it before, then we could never mm -hmm. make a judgment about murder because mm -hmm. you you cannot demand that somebody gets murdered in order to judge about that's bad to get murdered. And uh, what, what, what conceptually is, I think, confusing is that the how, how does it feel to be robbed, mm. discriminated or whatever, uh, is confused with that. So I think it's bad that discrimination mm. occurs, even if we cannot f feel mm -hmm. uh, how it is so i can say it's bad that someone is losing a leg even if i never have experienced how it feels like mm -hmm. to lose a leg i think this is sort of uh, and what we normally judge in moral statements is the, that aspect mm. because then we can talk objectively about this and about the harm of course it can be that for example an insult is more harmful than i thought mm -hmm. so i could be i could be saying something like well, an insult is not as bad as getting physically attacked. But then I could do a study of all the mm. people insulted, since I was ne never really insulted, and they say, no, actually, if I have the choice, I prefer getting beaten up than mm. getting insulted. So the value uh, is different. But then what I do is I generalize not... I, I don't look at one single experience, but I generalize empirically mm. over many experiences and then they have to be comparable mm -hmm. so uh, and then i do exactly the same i put it on an objective view an interpersonally objective view because i ask the people how bad it is mm. so i think this also is a counter um, argument against the view that you cannot talk about the topic if you have not experienced it because if one person experiences mm. the the same insult say uh, at the strength of six out of ten <laughs> and the next five and seven <laughs> yeah. you have to, have to average it in any case and some maybe the one person you were talking about is very sensitive when it comes to insults compared to the average mm -hmm. and maybe if some other people person is more robust but you cannot really uh, argue that on the one hand side this person has authority mm -hmm. but then also say it generalizes mm -hmm, mm -hmm, over all the other experiences yeah. but because if every single person has authority over his or her experiences you cannot generalize mm -hmm. you can only generalize if you say okay you, we built the average and then maybe you are above or below average but then you have already assumed that you can compare mm -hmm. experiences so i think that this sort of is a bit philosophical but i think these two are um, the wrong turns in the argumentative debate but can, can, I, can I add a sure, little thing yeah, yeah. and I think why is it still so common now to hear this and I think we have many terms in the moral discourse that also can be used for 
the status game. Mm -hmm. So I think we have status for our looks, our merits, or uh, the money we have, mm -hmm. or the academic achievements. So we can measure everything on a scale. So I know someone is younger than me, or more successful, mm -hmm. or um, I'm better in sports. So in, on all the scales, I can immediately I start I sort of find my 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 position, and I have mm. a keen view on what the others are and where I stand. I might I might be mistaken about I might exaggerate my own achievements, but mm -hmm. I do this all the time. I think we do the same with morals. Mm -hmm. So we look at other people and we think: Is this a generous person? Is this sort of someone to be trusted? Is that someone who's sensitive when it comes to discrimination? Is he he or she more harsh uh, when it comes to immigration? So we have this sort of we play this moral game, mm -hmm. and I think certain terms are. Um, 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 this is tempting to use them in this game to be on the moral higher status mm -hmm. than others. So, for example, if I have, um, if I suffer something like discrimination, I want some respect and some mm -hmm. um, compensation for it. Mm -hmm. And but when someone in the society says, "Look, in this group, if you if you suffer discrimination, you you get sort of a reward, you get a higher status," mm -hmm. then I will tend to exaggerate. A bit. Mm -hmm. It's really hard not to exaggerate, mm -hmm. and and uh, once I do this, it's really um, obvious that so. For example, when someone questions my authority and says, mm -hmm. "Look, someone said a slur to you. It's mm -hmm. bad, but come on, it happens. Uh, go to the police or just let it go, and it won't affect your life." This is sort of the standard view we had mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. This is sometimes called the dignity culture. So if mm. someone insults you, even if it's bad, either you go to the police, it's really bad, or you deal with it mm. and s say something back or just ignore the person. Mm. This is because in everyday life you will encounter sooner or later you slides and uh, uh, some, you will encounter challenges from other people. It's normal. But then when you change to this victimhood culture that you morally value being a mm. victim or fighting against victimhood, then you're more inclined to say, well, uh, you don't challenge my perspective because I have authority about my perspective. Mm -hmm. I have the lived experience. Mm -hmm. And then you give people, um, it's really hard for them to falsify their own statements. So this sort of an immuniza immunization. immunization strategy, because if, if someone would say, well, you're exaggerating. Mm -hmm. I always could say, no, well, it's my lived experience. You cannot mm -hmm. talk, you don't have any authority to, to talk to me about this because it's mine. Mm. And I think with many terms we have now, they, 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 they always come from the idea of protecting minorities and being more sensitive, but they're, they're very often used also in a sort of a dominant way. So and sometimes by outgroups. Yeah, by outgroups. So for example, mansplaining, they're really these type of men who have a derogative way of explaining mm. things to you, especially if they're male and then to, to younger females say, I explain it to you. Well, mm. you don't know like this. But very often in a discussion, if you have a male and a female, maybe the male is explaining something and then the female is explaining something. So it's not mansplaining if just a male person <laughs> explains something. It has to be derogative in order to count as real mansplaining. But in the status game, 
you might exaggerate it. And every time someone explains it to you, as a female, you don't like it that this person has a different view. So you you are maybe prone to call it mansplaining, even if it's sort of not really It's like a power grab. It's, a, it's not a power grab. I don't think even think that's very often intentionally, but it's more like um, it's a natural inclination to use whatever mm. means we can have in a discussion, even un unconsciously or half-knowingly. Mm. And, um, and the phenomenon behind it is sometimes called concept creep. So all the concepts we have for mm. harm, like trauma, uh, violence, um, uh, addiction, mm -hmm. depression are now used in a much wider sense than they were used 20 or 30 years ago. You can mm -hmm. really show this. There's a, a researcher, Nick Haslam, is his name, is a really great paper, who mm -hmm. sort of went through all these terms and looked in the dictionaries how they changed over time and the prevalence prevalence of, of these terms are also higher. There's another study that mm. shows in the last 10 years, all these harm related concepts, suppression, trauma, misogyny, racism, sexism, they all went up in frequency in the New York Times in the Washington Post and in, in 40 outlets of the media and also in abstracts of academic papers. Mm. There's a study about 140 million abstracts, 147 million abstracts. And you could show that these terms appear 10 years or so they started spiking in all abstracts yeah. so the prevalence prevalence is higher of these terms so we are more alerted to harm mm. we use it in a more wider sense we say now uh, words are violence emotional aggression we used to say aggression is physical attack mm. 20 years ago depression used to be really like clinical depression you had to be in bed for four weeks and couldn't move and were really really sort of uh, medically sick mm. and now people say i'm depressed or i have a depression even if this doesn't count in in the earlier sense as depression when they are for one week mm. in bed or trauma trauma used to be if you have shell shock as a soldier or or, or have lived through something horrible like rape or like a, a very uh, severe accident and now people say they're traumatized if uh, if they're misgendered or um, if, if they see a soldier in the train in uniform sometimes people say uh, it traumatizes me so they use it in a much wider sense mm. you can do this but then of course you are more you will find more cases and you're more sensitive to little um yeah little insults and little norm violations which are there but which used to be something like everyday life benign I wonder encounters. if this sort of language creep actually has a back reaction in the sense that you do actually feel worse as well so, so certainly to give like an yeah. example that's sort of orthogonal you know I, I guess now we're more aware of student of soldiers who come back from war with PTSD and so the question is the question you could ask is do soldiers now suffer more yeah. because we've sort of we have this terminology or are we becoming more aware of some suffering that was always underlying yeah of course um people who are um who are more prone to adhere to the victimhood culture would say the second 
we these were always non-violations or always real problems, but we don't didn't have the vocabulary for it, and now we have it, and then we can pinpoint it. And this is certainly true. We we there's studies showing that if we, if I don't have a term like racial profiling, uh, even for p people who are um, profiled racially. Say, say an African-American is profiled or someone here in Germany with a darker skin is profiled by the police more often than his peers would maybe not um, summarize this as a violation because he or she doesn't have the term for it. But once you have the term racial profiling, you're more alerted to maybe this practice is morally wrong. It's not it's a sort of a indirect form of discrimination and it's uh, uh, but was harder to pinpoint. So mm. there's something like um, um, it's sometimes called epistemic injustice mm -hmm. um, in philosophy. Um, I think Miranda Fricker is the author of the book. So the idea is that if you that different types of this epistemic injustice, and one type is hermeneutic, hermeneutic injustice. Mm if you don't have the terms for something, you cannot really articulate it and you might, might not see it. But I think you can also make the case for the other mechanism, that once you alert people to certain problems, they will find more mm -hmm. of the problems. And there's one experiment quite recently, Levari and colleagues, I think it was Nature or Science, mm. and they did this experiment on prevalence-induced concept creep. And they had one um, experiment showing people ambiguous faces and some were clearly aggressive and some were clearly friendly and mm -hmm. there were sort of merged morphed faces in the middle who were mm -hmm. not really and people were very uh, solid and they were very good in singling out the aggressive faces but then they started presenting them less and less aggressive faces and then their threshold wandered mm. towards the more open and nice faces. And they identified ambiguous faces as aggressive, which they hadn't mm. identified before. And you can do this with colors, you can do this with texts, and it um, seems to be a real deep ingrained um, aspect of the human cognition because mm. you, if you find it in different modalities it's very likely that's sort of a basic me mechanism it's not only perception but it's sort of faces colors language and uh, terms as Haslam mm. study so there's some evidence that probably this is working too and once we start looking for um, slight tiny norm violations and classify them as sexism or racism even if they are no real if even if there's no real harm done or even mm. if the harm is so tiny that it doesn't make a has mm. doesn't have an impact on your life for example then we tend to see more and that's one explanation i think why people when you ask them always think there's more sexism and racism in in the western world although old studies in almost all um, countries show that the first order attitudes decreased. Mm. So people are more liberal, less homophobic, less, sex, less sexist, less racist than they used to be. But since we are so um, 
finely tuned. Finely tuned to the <laughs> remaining part. Of course, there's still racism and sexism in the world. There's enough mm -hmm. to find. We, we get the wrong impression as if it's going up, mm. although our instruments are fine. It's a bit like finding mercury in water. If you have better instruments, no matter how refined the water is, you, you will find traces of mercury or lead or whatever. The finer the instruments, the, the more likely it is to you find something, but it's, it's below the threshold of any harmful mm. dose, but you can still sort of show it. Yeah, I, I've always sort of wondered whether through care and compassion and, and through really paying attention to this sort of terminology, you can actually in the end generate uh, suffering uh, in some way, which would be rather unfortunate. But on, on the topic of, of um, lived experience, it, since that's where we started, the, <laughs> the, the it's always sort of, although I, I have sort of, I empathize with the idea, it's always sort of felt a bit wrong to me because, well, first of all, it doesn't seem very scientific that only certain people can measure yeah. certain things. But, you know, if you go back in time, there was a time when people would say, oh, you could never have a female prime minister or president because the commander in chief has to be someone who can empathize with going to war. You know, you, if, if, you, if you're not someone in the population who maybe has been to war or sort of has the chance of going then you shouldn't in the end run the country and then at the same time fast forward to today and you have people saying um you know men for instance uh shouldn't have a say when it comes to abortion or never mind that there's many women who will maybe infertile women for ex example um and and so it would seem inconsistent to me to be able to say one and not the other or yeah. and so it's it, it sort of um yeah it's always it's always stood out to me as, as a, a poor argument yeah. um even though i can empathize it with it i wanted to i wanted to get on to sanitation and vaccination yeah. and and um antibiotics and ask you what these things have to do with liberal uh, liberalization so there's a um, there's a study by Thornhill and Fincher, I guess is the, um, the are the two scientists, and they um, developed the parasite stress theory of mm. democratization, and um, it was already known that in areas of the world where you have a lot of violence and um, um, a lot of danger from natural uh, natural disasters and so on, people are a bit more traditional and conservative. Mm. And maybe it's a strategy, as I said before, to deal with problems. So if you stick together as a family or as a group, you're better protected among one another, for example, if, if um, misfortune happens. Mm. Um, and they did a large survey on parasites in the world regions. In some regions you have many parasites, in the warmer regions more than in the colder regions. And um, they found out that in those world regions where you have a lot of parasite stress, so it's easy to get worms and other parasites by eating or by sexual intercourse or by uh, just normal intercourse because mm. the, um, uh, close contact with the hands and, and so on. You, it's easier to get infected. 
people tend to be more conservative and traditionalist. And you could extra you could, could show this for almost all countries. There's a very strong correlation. So the 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 safer the medical biological environment is, the more open can people be. For example, if I don't fear that uh, my libertine lifestyle, we have a lot of uh, supposed, I mean, this is sort of an example. So say I have a lot of sexual intercourse mm -hmm. and a very sort of the Berlin lifestyle, but I've, if I have a lot of, I, I can protect myself from infection and I'm not uh, thinking that people are very um, unclean or infectious, then I can have this lifestyle. But in a country where I know it's very likely that I will get infected mm -hmm. if I have intercourse with many people, I will be, of course, a bit more conservative when it comes to sexuality. I will, it will take longer. I want to know the mm -hmm. people. Sort of a hookup mm -hmm. sex party culture is not mm -hmm. something you would expect in those regions. And they made a very strong case that even the liberalization in the West an important part for them was uh, the anti-baby pill mm -hmm. and um, a more um, the, an improvement in hygiene mm -hmm. in, on average that, that made certain sexual norms more liberal and gave um, way for a, for a more open lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's this is sort of the idea, but it's really, of course, it's always hard to say about causation correlation. Um, but there were some um, studies that at least show something that's sometimes called the authoritarian reflex. So if, if you have a situation where this environment changes from safe to unsafe, mm. people then in the uh, world value surveys, the years later, tend to give a bit more conservative answers, mm. which still can be just a correlation, but it indicates a certain causal link between change of environment and then change of norms. Mm. There's one study, for example, that the swine flu, or was Ebola? There was one study on the swine flu and one on Ebola in the US, and the voters were a bit more conservative when both uh, um, pandemics or yeah pandemics came out and those who were um, vaccinated against the swine flu were not affected by stories about how dangerous the swine flu is mm. they for example didn't change their views on immigration but people who were not vaccinated changed their views on immigration and were uh. more a bit more strict on immigration and of course the flu same with corona when when you had the lockdown everywhere in the world People were, some people were sort of af more afraid of foreigners, especially when they looked Asian because they mm. thought, okay, it's the Asian disease. And if you look Asian, you probably have it. And then they, they were sort of, they expressed more fear mm. of foreigners than others. That, that actually, it makes me curious because in America, the, it seemed to be that people on the right were predominantly the people who didn't really seem to care much about yeah. corona right they they thought it was ridiculous all these lockdown yeah. laws and yeah. so why would it be so if, if disgust sensitivity correlates with conservatism yeah. why would it be the right side of politics that is sort of you know yeah, disgust sensitivity first says everybody is moving a bit to the 
conservative side. So mm. it would you would see it more with people who are very liberal becoming mm -hmm. a bit more conservative. And the other effect is, of course, you have uh, rivaling uh, moral principles. So I think what happened was in the beginning, in Germany, for example, you could see that... There was a spread right here. We had the Querdenker and that was... Yeah, but, but before the Querdenker came, there was a very short period where at least the right-wing populist AfD mm. accused the government of not being strict enough. And then after a while, they realized that people uh, find it more pressing that the government sort of, sort of oppresses them and changes their lives. So mm -hmm. it was more about freedom, or at least what they um, understood as negative freedom. The, the government tells me what to do. Mm -hmm. And this uh, sort of uh, produced stronger reactions mm -hmm. And then the AfD at least capitalized on this reaction and were against most of the measurements. And I think the same uh, happened with the Republicans. It was more about the sentiment, the government is telling me what to do and I don't want the government to tell me what to do. So it was not about so much about infection, but was more about mm -hmm. um, who is in charge and uh, I don't want others to tell me what to do and this is a very strong mm. so it's sort of there's two two ways of of thinking about freedom negative and positive freedom so um, Leibniz and Isaiah Berlin have sort of written on this so freedom negatively understood is f being free of coercion or mm. oppression it's sort of the negative the absence I want to have the absence of coercion freedom is the absence of something mm -hmm. so you're free if you're not in chains as Hume would put it. And then the positive view on freedom is you're free if you are free to follow your uh, self-expression or your mm -hmm. um, uh, preferences. So if you can do one thing or the other, you can express yourself. Sort of, this is the autonomy view on freedom and this is sort of more the positive view. You, mm -hmm. I can do this or can do this. Give me the chance to um, flourish. Mm. and self-express uh, myself through my actions. And in the um, liberal and like in the, um, say in the conservative area, but also like libertarians in, in the US and liberale in German mm. are more to, to, they lean more towards negative freedom. They want the government to leave them alone. Mm. They would just want to do their thing and the government should not interfere economically or personally with my affairs. Mm. But when you look at the left, mm. the progressive side, they have a more positive view on freedom, like a view on positive freedom. So you should, the government's duty is to give everybody the same chance of fulfilling mm. their dreams and living by their, mm. uh, according to their preferences or desires. And this was more the idea, okay, but then you have some need more protection. So in order to give them their freedom of living, we have to restrict mm. the others mm. in their use. So we have to tell them to wear masks and to stay at home and to get vaccinated. And, and, and this is also a female-male-female clash. So you, many studies in the US and Germany showed that males uh, don't like so much if people tell them what to do, <laughs> much less because they're less concerned with safety of others and more concerned with um, 
uh, impediments to their own freedom, whereas mm. on the female side, people are uh, the, the the women are a bit more concerned with um, the vulnerable, the children, mm. and uh, those who who don't can who cannot protect themselves. So they were more on the side. Well, the government can be strong as long as it protects mm. those um, in danger. It's sort of interesting, right? Because people say that women are more disgust sensitive. Yeah. Um, at least that's what I understand. No, no, but this is what the studies show. Yeah, and, it's true. And so that would sort of make me think that women should be more conservative. Yeah, um, if it's only disgust, it should be, uh, I, I that's thought- That's overridden, right? Yeah, yeah, it must be overridden. I, I don't know the answer to this question because mm. I, but I ex ask myself exactly the same. If you read the literature, it's pretty clear it's a worldwide fact that women are more disgust sensitive than men. Uh, the typical evolution explanation is mm. um, it has to do with food and caring for children. Maybe it's a very old mechanism that you have to be very aware of what is infectious and rotten and good or not good mm. for you and the and the child. So maybe this is the could be the mechanism. But then, of course, disgust sensitivity is correlated with conservatism mm. and it's a strong indicator. There are some studies now who say maybe it depends again on the questions. Mm. So interpersonal <laughs> disgust seems to be a more conservative thing, but food disgust, maybe it's a more liberal thing. Mm -hmm. So exactly what you said before, it strongly depends on, on the target or the focus of your research. If you only ask people about interpersonal disgust, do you find these uh, uh, foreigners disgusting? Of course, then you find more on the conservative side, but if you look more like food disgust, maybe you find other so this is mm. still an open question. There's mm. sort of a, still a, a debate in psychology about <laughs> what kind of disgust we are talking about. Mm. And if you change the questions, you get different answers. But I think also, yeah, it must be overridden. It's probably that then agreeableness could be uh, stronger or the caring mm. for the weak could be stronger and override this. Um, it, there could be also a first mover effect, right, with regards to why Republicans in America and, and why the AFD here in Germany were sort of anti-vaccine. So in, in the States, for example, Trump sort of came out at the very beginning saying it didn't really matter, it was, yeah. was going to be gone. It, it, I wanted to ask you earlier, because um, from reading your book, you have this sentence about Al Gore and how he... Uh, so I wanted to ask... You know, Al, Al Gore came out uh, being concerned about climate change. And I, I suppose he was on the left, yeah. right? And, and so now climate change is sort of, the people who have more strongly in climate denial, change denial is sort of on the right side of the yeah. spectrum. And do you th think it could have been different? Do you think it could have been the case that if Al Gore had not been the one that came yeah. out, um, that things would have been different? Is there sort of the, this idea of a moral first mover? Yeah, it's a bit of this. This is not in the book, but there's some um, evidence for this view. I mean, I, I've written a bit about it, but there's new evidence about this view. So, so one observation is that the Republicans, George Bush, the father of George W. Bush, um, in the 80s, late 80s, I think, um, he brought forth one of the most um, comprehensive um, nature protection programs in the history of the US. And it was very common 
that there was among the voters of the Republicans a stronger connection towards nature. Uh, you live more in rural areas, uh, hunting and going out was a bit more, like into the into nature was a bit more common. And there also there, there was a religious connection that nature is sort of um, made by God. It's God's creation. So there was a strong connection that you have to protect nature. Mm. And but it 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 seems seems that it got a new framing when Al Gore mm. said climate change is sort of the topic of the Democrats. Mm. And then it seems a bit like a backlash. The reaction from the Republicans was we are against Al Gore and the Democrats. He is proposing that climate change is a real problem, so now we are against climate change. Although the tradition was more like a the 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 the, the protective the nature protective tradition was more associated with Republicans, mm. and then uh, I think it's more like first mover is one aspect, but also tribalism. That you are it's not a, so much about is it true that climate change exists. So, so but is it the topic of my opponent or is it mm. my topic? which is in a sense really naive hmm. because some topics are not, they don't have a political um, aspect. I mean, either the climate changes or doesn't. It's, it doesn't care about your political position. But then there's new evidence came out about two or three years ago. There was a paper about the Fox News effect, mm -hmm. which really sort of uh, supports this view that has to do with the backlash because when the Green New Deal was first announced, I think, three or four years ago. And you ask Republicans and Democrats, to, what, what do you think of the Green New Deal? So the idea that you invest in green technology, but also in a sense that you don't um, produce a lot of um, uh, adverse effects, mm -hmm. but that you do it in a way that you support the working class. So a, like a socially um, sensitive way of changing from the old industry to the green industry. Mm. And um, the majority of Republicans thought it's a good idea. Mm. I think 50 or 60 percent, maybe even more. Mm. And then Fox News um, framed the whole debate as a sort of a, a new idea from the left. <laughs> the Green New Deal is a new idea from the left. And then you could see in the surveys that I think it was half a year or a year, a very short period of time, I don't know the numbers, but uh, not longer than one or two years. In a very short period of time, the approval sh shrank? Uh, it disappeared or, yeah, disappeared it, it or reduced. Yeah, reduced uh, to, shrank, yeah. Yeah, to, to a very small percentage, only by reframing the debate. So. It must have been that the people were in this situation that they thought, ah, oh, my party is sort of against it. The majority seems to be against it. Fox News is representative of this majority. And I used to like it, but now I don't like it anymore. But sort of this is how opinion change can happen, even though apparently before that, there was a majority in the country to to have a Green New Deal. Hmm. It's... it's um it's interesting. I, I want to get on to your topic of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about this. <laughs> so it, it sort of does lead in, right? Because yeah. 
what what is it that makes what is it that makes bullshit so captivating? Yeah. So so why why is it that uh, we get drawn into fake news? Why why what is it about our evolved psychology that makes us sort of susceptible to misinformation, disinformation, yeah. lies, and bullshit? I say something about what bullshit is sure. before, and then uh, yeah. about the second question. So um, we all know. Uh, uh, who a liar is. So a liar is someone who, who knows the truth and says something he or she believes to be untrue in mm. order to deceive someone. So that's a typical case of lying. And we know someone who is honest. It's, mm. it's just the opposite. And then there was this philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, who said, well, there's something in the middle between the mm. two. There's a person who um, is not lying but doesn't care really about whether what he or she is saying is true or false. And maybe we think of now of Trump as a prime example, because Trump at some occasion said, mm. I just said it and I didn't even know whether it's true or false. Um, I don't care. And this attitude, not caring whether it's true or false, Harry Frankfurt called this person is a bullshitter. He said mm. he's in between the, the honest person and uh, the liar is the bullshitter. The bullshitter is sort of indifferent towards the truth. Mm. He doesn't care about it. And in a sense, he's maybe even more dangerous because the liar at least knows or supposedly knows what is true or false. And he's just a deceptive person, whereas the bullshitter has given up on truth. He doesn't care at all anymore. Mm. And it was a bit like a. it came out in the 80s and now it's sort of an interesting... Um, uh, it, it almost looks like a, a cultural di um, diagnosis uh, made 20 years earlier in advance of our time because now with social media we have the, uh, the ability to promote almost everything and very often we don't know whether it's true or false. We just mm. like it, we click it, we share it and um, it's much easier now to distribute, disseminate what Harry Frankfurt is calling bullshit. But you can expand the term a bit. I think you, you, you should bullshit uh, in the more ordinary sense of the word comprises uh, fake news, conspiracy theories, pseudoscience, um, quackery, humbug. I mean, there are all kinds of sort of um, uh, ways of speaking where people really don't know or don't care about whether it's true or false. Mm. And then uh, you can ask yourself, why is it, um, why is there so much bullshit in the world? And I think especially when you look at digital media, it's, um, there's a sort of a competition, the, the, the different statements are in a competition of, uh, about, in a competition over our attention. Hmm. So it's a bit like a survival of the fittest. And uh, when something is new, exciting, emotionally laden, politically um, um, extreme or interesting, it grabs our attention. Hmm. And if it's complex and more of average nature, it doesn't grab our attention. So and a true statement sometimes is very exciting but very often not so exciting. Mm. And if I want, if I don't care about the truth, I don't care, uh, I can make up only statements that are emotionally uh, 
um, charged, charged, exciting, and will lead to a lot of attention. So, in the in the if you have a fight for attention between a true statement and a bullshit mm -hmm. statement, the bullshit statement will always win <laughs> because everything the true statement can do, the bullshit statement can do too, without. Mm need for being precise, accurate, and so on. Mm. And I think this is one reason why fake news are potentially more uh, are easily disseminated than real news. I mean, there are a few studies that show it's easier. People remember fake news more often. They share it easier and so on because they have something of their, in their content that makes it more interesting. And I think that's, that can be many reasons. I mean, but in, in some sense, they sort of appeal to us emotionally. Either they disgust us or anger us or we find it interesting or it, it sort of supports our view. Mm. So no matter what it is, it's always easier to have these features than um, doing the same but being honest to the truth, which is harder, of course. Can you sort of, do politicians get away, I mean, you mentioned Trump. Yeah. Do, do politicians get away with bullshit because in some sense it's expected? You know, is the thing that we dislike deception rather than lies? Yeah, it's really hard to say. I mean, Trump is a new case. I mean, there was nothing like this before. There were always these um, um, archives of the lies of the presidents from the New York Times. And if you look at Hillary Clinton, as a candidate, for example, or Bill Clinton or Obama, they had their fair share of lies too. I mean, mm. all politicians lie once in a while, maybe intentionally, or sometimes they might say something which is wrong and they don't know, and we think it's a lie, but they are lying and bullshitting. I mean, that's sort of common. But there's a certain level we don't want to cross. I mean, we accept that even our most cherished politicians sometimes lie, but if they do it on a regular basis, like 10 lies a day is too much. And yeah. sort of, it's, uh, it's getting out of hand. And I think with Trump was a different situation because he also was valued for his authenticity. Mm. And for a strange reason, just saying what he wanted to say and not caring about the truth was a bit uh, also a signal, the signal of power. Mm. I have the power not to care at all, not even whether it's true or false what I say, I just say it. And it, for some reason it was appealing mm. to at least a part of the Republican voters who thought this is sort of the way you have to fight against the establishment, although he himself was establishment and upper class and connected mm. and so on. But he could sort of promote himself as authentic by not following the norms, not even the norms of rational discourse of saying what is true or false. Mm. I think that is what happened. But I, it didn't really work so well, for example, with the AfD in Germany, if you mm. compare this. Maybe because they don't really have a charismatic leader mm -hmm. as Trump or for some other reasons. But um, they tended to say that everything in the press is lies. We have this famous word Lügenpresse. So the press is full of lies. A bit what Trump also says when he said fake news in the sense mm. of the news agency or the news outlet like the New York Times or CNN is, is fake as a whole, not, not a single mm. news information, but the sort of the station, the news station is fake. Um, but we, we didn't have this so much. And people were very concerned because of Trump in Germany 
when it came to fake news, was one mm -hmm. of the most important topics in 2017, 2018. And they really wanted the government or whatever institution to do something against it. So in a sense, it, I think they became very sensitive towards this problem. Mm. And my impression is, at least from the numbers, the majority thinks it's a problem and wants to have an honest discourse based on mm. facts. I wonder, apart from signaling to your you know, constituents or whoever you're trying to get the message out to, what other benefits there were in the background for politicians like like Trump. So for example, one of the problems today is that everyone has so much information. You can you can get so much more information about the politicians yeah. and their lives, and everything. You can see everything and, and everyone's sort of on 24/7. So one of the things I wonder about is when you start throwing bullshit into the airwaves, you sort of reduce the available bandwidth that people have they've got to sort of fight against yeah. these different things and so i sort of the the specific question i have is you know what's going on in the background as as people are throwing out bullshit in the foreground but just more generally you know who benefits from bullshit yeah is it, yeah this is i think a different i don't i don't have a definite answer but it's, i think it's a very pressing question so the first observation is there was one study about the a production of fake news during the campaign Hillary Clinton against Trump and they found out that there are if you look at all the fake news that about less than 2% of people were producing 80% of the <laughs> fake news content they they're called super spreaders mm. and um, funnily on the other side intentionally intentionally yeah people do nothing else from more early morning to <laughs> till the till nightfall than producing and sharing fake news information. So mm -hmm. it's a very small fraction, 80%. Sorry to interrupt you. Is yeah. this, are you do you mean like paid actors or just, just as people? This that is are hard to say because the study doesn't, it could be trolls, could be bots, <laughs> could be paid content, mm. even foreign agencies interfering. You, you, don't, you don't really know, but this is sort of what you could get from the network data. Mm -hmm. And the, the other group is the super consumers. Mm -hmm. So again, uh, around 2% or even less of the consumers consumed 80% of all fake news. So you have two, two little groups sitting in echo chambers. Mm -hmm. One is producing all the time, <laughs> one is consuming all the time. And when you look from the outside on Twitter, you think every second posting is fake news. Uh, nobody cares for truth anymore, but the majority cares for truth mm -hmm. is just sort of a it's a bit like a, um, it's a bit like thermodynamics you know mm. um, I, I half jokingly I called it the um, um, how, how it's called Unordnung in German it's um, unordered yeah Un if you you produce it's 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 easier to produce uh, unorder than order oh, uh, disorder disorder yeah yeah so, and the same is with information. I mean, it takes more energy to clean up. Yep. If someone pollutes, <laughs> if someone pollutes your your information space, as you described, with fake news, it's uh, the energy to say, okay, look, you have read this. It's fake news. Mm -hmm. It takes more energy for me. It's much easier to share, to share, to share, and to correct it, and to reach the same people, and then make them change their minds takes more energy so there's always an asymmetry if someone starts with 
fake news, counter actions mm. need more and more and more energy. So you, yeah, so something like an entropy of uh, content, the entropy, um, how do you say in physics, rises. The, the entropy yeah. increases. Increases, yeah. The entropy of information bullshit increases because um, to get order again, you need more energy uh, in a sense. Uh, I think this is, and then people inferred from this that there could be an interest for someone like Trump to send out so many informations mm. that people don't believe the facts anymore. And this is sort of really hard to, to tell. There's this concept gaslighting mm -hmm. so that you uh, confuse someone by so many uh, false events or claims they can't trust they, they don't yeah. trust their um, intuitions or their gut feeling or their judgment anymore but there's no real empirical evidence as far as i know that really shows this that people after they are confronted with so many fake news stop believing any news mm. so i think it's more likely that it's just um, a fight for attention and as you said if the attention span is limited and you sort of occupy the center of attention, even if it's fake news and bullshit, you you take away the resources from the other person and the attention from the other person who has more, maybe more complicated, but more honest mm. content. I think this is what happened. And also people have motivated cognition, as mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. So they tend to share and like fake news more if it's confirms their own ideology. There was a huge study that showed that's almost same on the left and in the right mm. hand side, a bit more on the right hand side, but not mm. dramatically more. So we all have the tendency if it sort of fits our ideology and then we share it more. So it, that makes it even easier mm. for fake news content to get shared. Mm. And um, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of the basic setting. How divided are we really? You know, it feels like this division. It feels like people are really at each other's throats. But is it real or just perceived? I think it's, it's in many cases, it's just perceived because uh, we take social media, and I think especially Twitter, because this is important for journalists as a, um, a proxy for the public in general. Mm -hmm. And there's a typical bias called the um, availability bias mm -hmm. that we tend to judge from a um, problematic sample. So normally the sample has to be representative of the whole. And this is done in surveys if they're done well in social sciences. But if, you're, if I look at Twitter, I get the impression uh, this is one group and this is the other group and they are, these are representative, say, of Democrats or Republicans or in Germany of the left and the right or of certain parties. But we know just from a lot of research that uh, people who are more extreme get more attention on social media, um, content that is, has sort, certain words and emotional phrases gets more uh, traction mm -hmm. by the algorithms Mm. Um, it, uh, certain people get more reactions from the other side, which uh, sh uh, gets them more attention again f uh, because of engaged content. So uh, you have sort of a winner takes it all um, mechanism that a few people get a lot of attention and then you have a long tail of all mm -hmm. the others. And uh, this 
gives everybody the impression uh, the world is a place that is so polarized mm. and so unforgiving that we will never come to any agreement. And then the, you have this new phenomenon of the exhausted, exhausted majority. So many people say, I'm not at social media. Even if I look on TV and see the debates, they are far away from my position. They are too extreme. Um, I don't want to engage in this sort of this style of public debate. Mm. And um, when you but when you look at studies on the actual views on policies or on inequality, for example, in Germany, I know a lot of data on Germany, but also in the US, people are very often less polarized. So, so example, there was one study from Stefan Mao, who's a professor of sociology in, at the Humboldt University, and they ask people about inequalities, so about migration, um, economic inequality, and sexual identity or mm. sexual diversity. And you could say roughly race, class, gender, the three large topics of um, social justice and inequality. And people v gave very similar answers and had very similar views that these three areas are problematic and mm. that people are suffering. And there was some difference, some polarization when it comes to migration, mm. a bit stronger than when it came to sexual diversity and uh, socioeconomic diversity. There were some differences, minor differences between people who were very poor, who were more mm. concerned with socioeconomic differences, people who were very rich and affluent mm. and educated, who were more concerned with migration and uh, gender inequality. Of course, it's sort of a certain bias or interest you have there. But overall, you couldn't really find uh, the classical picture of polarization where you have two um, the sort of the two bumps of a mm. camel and the mm. middle is sort of thin and there's nobody in the middle but in, in general it was more like a mm -hmm. um, how do you call it like a equal distribution mm. uh, more or less of course mm. not super not yeah. mathematic in the math math mathematical sense but um, and um, Still, when you look at journalism, of course, they prioritize uh, conflict. Mm. So they tend much more to focus on uh, contentious issues mm. and struggle and fights and polarization when it comes to the public debate. Mm -hmm. But it's not shared by most of the mm. people. In the US, it might be different because there's a lot of evidence that shows that the people really are falling apart. Mm. But um, this is not true in other areas. I don't know about Australia, for example, or other countries. Yeah. France is a bit more polarized than Germany. Only th about 30%, one third says I'm in the middle, in the political middle. And about one third says I'm on, on either side. So this is a bit uncommon. Mm. But they also have a presidential system. Mm and not a many party system because in the end one only one party wins so i think i'm in a bit of a bubble here in berlin so i don't really have a good feel for what the country's yeah. like in general yeah. i've been too far outside of australia yeah. but uh what what memes would you say right now in the current discourse are bullshit memes yeah 
as uh, so uh, memes are, are like the social version of a gene you know some oh, idea yeah, yeah, yeah. The concepts that yeah, spread Dawkins um, the, the first that comes to my mind is um, in Germany we have now a debate about police brutality mm-hmm. that sort of mirrors in a sense the American debate but it's uh, very rare that the police killed someone in Germany I don't know how many there are I two digits or so mm-hmm. and um, sometimes people share and, and on, on the left of course you have to show that you are against authority and uh, any form of discrimination or uh, aggression and then they tend to share videos or snippets of uh, police um, uh, stopping say someone or um, checking someone or um, putting someone in handcuffs and sometimes this is even rough but it's very typical that you see little videos and the same happens to me my first reaction is oh they are very brutal to this guy mm. does he deserve it why, why is it like this mm. but very often it comes out if you see the story before and after or the wider context and maybe the, the person sorry person has has attacked someone before or was dangerous or was beside himself so of course there are cases of real police brutality that have to be prosecuted but very often is sort of the the sentiment is the police is brutal and very racist Mm. and if you look at the numbers in berlin for example almost a third of police officers has a migration background in berlin and um, the police has about 200 50,000 members in Germany Mm. and by the numbers even if you have what of course is reprehensible small networks of racist police officers you of course you have to fire them and prosecute them and get them out of the force because that's um, um, there's no discussion that you have to do this but it seems sometimes from the from the from the spread of information as if you have many more than mm. there actually are. This is sort of one topic, I think, in the, on the left and on the right, of course, is this view that um, that the whole thing about COVID, uh, lockdowns, masks, vaccinations, are mechanism of the government to suppress us and put us um, like, like in a totalitarian state. Mm. And every mistake that is sort of in hindsight comes out maybe the lockdown was too strict but we couldn't know this before i mean the typical case is that some something is sort of is the best solution in this situation and then one year later we find out mm, it was not so <laughs> problematic we had the lockdown you mm. cannot sort of reevaluate on later mm. knowledge what people have done so this is sort of a, it's almost like a moral panic on the right-hand side, you mentioned the Querdenker movement, that the government uses uh, the masks or the vaccination to control us or whatever, uh, when uh, every politician is, of course, is struggling to enforce these uh, laws or these uh, measurements, knowing that it's annoying for most of the people, mm. even those who agree with it. I mean, of course, it's annoying. For me, I agree with wearing a mask in public spaces, but it's absolutely annoying. <laughs> I would, I would like to not to wear the mask, and it's, of course, it's a tough decision for a politician. But this is sort of the second, and these I saw very often in the last one and a half years, 
mm. but there are probably other examples do you have one in mind i think the the one the main one that i really had was um like you said the mask mandates the vaccines one thing that i can mention is that you know at this at this point um you know, people have been vaccinated now. And so we forget what it felt like two years ago when we weren't vaccinated. And so people have very strong feelings about what the government should or shouldn't have done, being completely forgetful of the circumstances that were in place just six months ago. I think that's a type of bullshit uh, on its own, right? That you have this sort of this amnesia yeah. <laughs> for, for what things were like just six months yeah. ago, just a year ago. Hindsight uh, bias. Yeah. So you know you have more information later and you forget that you don't have the information and you can only judge an action by mm. the information given at mm. this moment. So you had certain preferences and desires to uh, protect the society and you had certain knowledge that the disease is contagious and then you started saying you shouldn't say uh, hello with your hand. And later on we found out, mm. no, it's aerosols, and the hand is almost never mm. a pathway of infection. People, funnily enough, still say hi with their elbows or with their knuckles and they don't give you the hand, although it's absolutely clear that if you wash your hands, there's no problem mm. saying hello with the hand. Yeah, and then it's a bit stupid too. I, I'm not too sure that's bullshit in any case. Sometimes mm. it's just um, a very common bias or um, mental shortcut. I mean, the, the Kahneman has written the whole book mm. on, on fast and slow thinking. And he says that we have these two systems. Fast, uh, the fast system is sort of emotional, automatic, um, and, and fast. You make fast decisions. Um, and the system two is sort of rational thought. It takes uh, attention. It takes energy mm. and time. And since we are sort of uh, lazy, we tend to use always system one unless we have to use system two which is more effortful and then mm. for example um, if we park a car we have mm. to concentrate but normally if we drive sort of it's almost an autopilot if it's mm. not sort of a, a complex situation and I think the same happens with thought mm. uh, if someone asks you how were the measurements of the government? Was it okay now? Was wrong? Uh, and you totally forget. You, you don't do the effort to put yourself in the situation two years ago. Hmm. I guess another sort of bullshit that's sort of currently in the airwaves is surrounding the Ukraine war, right? You're, you're getting a lot of messaging from both sides yeah. about what's going on, about the uh, intentions of various... I mean, there are people saying, for, for instance, that... Um, the the landing in Hostomel Airport in, in the northwest of Ukraine in the initial uh, invasion was just a feint. You know, they didn't ever intend to take uh, Kiev. They they were just it was a diversion, right? Yeah. You have sort of this sort of. I don't know if this is the sort of flavor that you're looking for, but uh, it's certainly messaging that seems to be put out to distract from what's really going on. Yeah, I mean propaganda was always since um, the first villages started to fight each other. They mm. used propaganda to uh, motivate their own people and to, um, how do you say, um, vilify mm. the others. 
and truth in, in war, truth is not so important. It's more about motivation and uh, about being in the right group. So of course you will find all kinds of disinformation, intentional and unintentional disinformation campaigns. And um, Russia does this um, mm. almost out of tradition. I mean, they have uh, meddled with elections and mm. uh, have people working to, to spread false news in the West. But we, I think we made the mistake to think that everything that comes now from the Ukrainian mm. side is pure and um, correct and never has any twist to it. And of course, even if you're the wrongful mm. victim of an invasion of a, of a superpower, you, of course you will also use all means of communication, framing mm. and um, uh, weaponized narrative, so to say, to uh, to get your idea across, to motivate your own people, mm. to to show the West what's going on, and um, so we have always to have a sort of a, a distance towards media, not only towards um, language sentences mm. which can be true or false or bullshit, but also to towards pictures and films. I didn't talk so much about this in the book, but I think mm. it becomes is clear that this is also a very effective mean to influence people, especially because um, pictures and film um, influence you more directly. They, um, they evoke emotions immediately mm. and um, it's harder to find the context. I mean, you can, e only if you change the perspective, sometimes it looks as if this is horrible or this is justified. So. This will all be used in, in information campaigns, and sometimes information campaigns have a strong emphasis on disinformation. I want to ask you just one more question quickly, sort of off to the side, and then I want to wrap up just by asking you very quickly about the impact of bullshit on our society and sort of ways to counter it. Yeah. Um, you just sort of made me think of uh, language and symbols and and their importance so in, in particular how important it is to control language uh, in the discourse so, so let me give you some examples and these aren't necessarily related they're just yeah. th some that are sort of outside of the culture and ones that may be closer yeah. to the German uh, story so for example um, we restrict the use of words like the n-word yeah right so that's that's uh, one thing and then there's the use of pronouns um and then an example that's sort of maybe closer to you but it's not language so much as symbolism is uh in america in, in germany rather if you did the um hitler Gruß, the yeah. the nazi salute yeah um in the wrong place you might get beaten up uh in in and it's illegal right so yeah i i guess the question i want to ask is how do we know when it's okay to restrict la restrict language like w under what circumstances is it okay to place um, these sorts of restrictions yeah I think it's a bit a new topic but I think the um, it's typically the topic of freedom of speech and freedom of speech never meant not even when John Stuart Mill formulated it in in his work on liberalism um, that you can say whatever you want to say. 
Mm. And the typical limitations to freedom of speech are if what you do is harmful, John Stuart Mill calls it the harm principle. So if what, I, what I'm doing with speech or more broadly with symbols of all kinds, um, if this is harmful to anyone, uh, I shouldn't do it and it can be prosecuted like the Hitler goose in Germany. It's a um, felony. So, um, but uh, what are examples for harm, harmful speech? Uh, I cannot reveal personal private data about someone. It can mm -hmm. harm this person. I'm not allowed to shout fire in a theater because mm -hmm. it can cause a mass panic. I cannot, I'm not allowed, at least in Germany, I think in the US, the same, I don't know about Australia, excite violence. Mm -hmm. So this is, if I say, let's go and kill these people over there, um, this is, of course, free, a free expression of my view. But if the consequences are harmful, I'm not allowed to do this. And in Germany, for example, de denial of the Holocaust is also mm -hmm. a, it's also considered harmful. And uh, insults are even fined. I mean, there, there's a sort of range of, for smaller ones like idiot, you pay 200. Euros really? And then, then it goes up. If it's an idiot, ma might be even uh, you have to ask a lawyer. Idiot might be might be even so lexicalized and so common that you don't have to pay. Okay. But is um, if you find stronger words, there's a sort of amount of money you pay, and the stronger the word gets, the I higher. Didn't know that. The higher the money is. If you have, of course, you need um, proof, proof, <laughs> and witnesses. But in, in in principle, it's possible. And um, but then there's a whole discussion whether apart from these cases there are still words or expressions that are harmful you shouldn't uh, use and uh, i think there are different effects sort of or factors sort of converging into this you might call it political correctness idea so i think one is the tradition of the left that is sensitive to harm and from Marx on uh, via Adorno and the critical theory, Foucault and other movements in the um, sort of intellectual left, the idea was first to help those people who are disadvantaged mm -hmm. and give them better material conditions. Though Marx was about the um, uh, class fight, the class struggle of the working class and they should get more rights and more um, uh, shares from, from their work. And then there were uh, uh, sort of the whole tradition of fighting against material injustices. And the more the societies became, became um, welfare states, the less um, cases you could find of um, really sort of very clear cases of uh, super evil injustices. Of mm. course, there's still inequality and there is a lot of injustice in the world, but it became less and less. People became more similar to each other. The chances were better. The education system is better. Um, so there is a tendency then in the intellectual left discourse to focus more on symbolic mm. and cultural harm, not so much um, real material harm, which is also still a topic, but also focus on maybe the words or the way people are represented culturally can also be harmful. 
mm. and I think it has a bit to do with this concept creep idea because mm. the less you find on the strong material side the more you have to look at cases which are more subtle mm. or even and even in some cases maybe so extreme that you as an outsider would say is that still is that really harmful or what is this, this about so I think this is one movement and then um, also the language can be like should be inclusive so the main idea is you shouldn't use certain words for example for a group uh, that doesn't want this words to be used so in germany we have the word zigeuner mm -hmm. is gypsy and about there's there was never a study there was one now conducted a couple of years ago and if you ask roma and sinti these are the two major groups there are also others in germany is it okay for someone else to call you zigeuner i think ab about half of them says it's okay and the other half says no i don't mm. really like this and some use it for themselves others don't so we have a change now in the german official way of talking about this we don't use this term anymore mm -hmm. as a general term i don't think it was negative as my, many would claim in the past but it was it's not sort of okay anymore mm -hmm. to use it and this you can find in many languages in many countries but then also you have a tendency this this is sort of about inclusion but then you have also the tendency among the sort of academic elites to have their own vocabulary of exclusion. Mm. So you can use a specialized vocabulary, it used to be Latin, to exclude others who don't speak your language. And it's very interesting that in German, most of the terms now used in the, especially in the social science and the humanities, in the discourse, which also sort of triples down into a more public discourse via social media are terms that nobody who is not familiar with these um, trends can understand. So we talked about mansplaining, gaslighting, intersectionality, mm. transgressivity, the subaltern, mm. um, alterity, alterität, and I don't even know the English term for it. So there's a whole language and vocabulary of of terms epistemic injustice and so on um systematic or structural mm. racism redlining racial profiling and so on and many people don't even know what the terms mean so in a sense they are they're meant to draw attention to injustices but as a side effect or maybe partly as a main effect they mm. also create a certain language of moral superiority and exclusion for those who don't speak in this in these terms and i think this even though it's meant to be inclusive people often don't realize that they use it exclusively so bourdieu said the same about taste hmm. if you ask the upper class what do they like yeah abstract uh, paintings Uh, absurd theater, uh, the Goldberg variations from Bach, but only played by, Jen, uh, by uh, Glenn Gould, um, uh, the old recordings, not the new ones. So, and the people were honestly giving aesthetic statements, and mm. they really believe it. It's not fake, yeah. but still, it's a mechanism to individualize yourself and exclude others and show that you belong to a certain group. Nice. I think the same happened 
happens now with moral vocabulary, mm. although it was meant to, to be to doing something good, it's now sometimes very exclusive, especially in Germany, almost all the terms are now Latin or English. And large parts of the German population, about 80% don't have a high school, uh, don't have an academic education, only 18% have academic education in Germany. And most of the, these 80% don't speak English so well to understand what ableism is. Mm. Even I think people in the academic circles don't know the terms and they change very often mm. at, a, at, a, at a pace that is almost impossible to follow. So it was okay to say, uh, say um, Afro-Deutsch, Afro-German, yeah. But maybe two years later, you have to see to say person of color. It's not mm -hmm. okay to use the German term anymore. So it's really hard to follow. And then you have two groups. Maybe one group says it's okay to say it, the other doesn't. So it's a great confusion. I think this is one aspect also, again, signaling to your group that you belong to the group. You know the latest words. Mm. And um, the effect of those words is not so important anymore. So it's not really that you can show if you don't use this word harm is done as opposed to the other word mm. so it's more about showing that you know the vocabulary it's really interesting when this sort of a cultural leap uh, of terminology one of the most uh I, I guess funny examples is uh with the blm movement in england people were at protest shouting uh things like hands up don't shoot and things like this to police where the police didn't have weapons yeah um but it's always interesting to see, for example, German terminology disappearing in, in favor of English terminology yeah. as well. That's a little bit, uh, it's a weird sort of colonialism that we have on our hands here. I don't, yeah, maybe it's <laughs> colonialism, but also it could be, a, I, I call it the progressive marker. So if you want to show others that you're very progressive, you can be morally progressive, if you know the newest morals and um, nuances of social interaction. You can be aesthetically progressive if you know the newest art or movies or books, but you can also show that you're culturally progressive by using many English terms because that's sort of the cosmopolitan lifestyle. Mm. So uh, in my generation and even the younger generation is very common to use a mix of German and English words. Mm. And it, uh, they used to do f make fun of it. Uh, when I was young, there were even songs created, uh, mm. sort of a, uh, like a, a pigeon between German and English. So a very strange... Denglish. Yeah, Denglish. Yeah, exactly. And they made fun of it, but now uh, of it, but now it's uh, quite common to show your, your among the crowd. I think it's the mm. same sort of signaling you do by using certain words. And interestingly, uh, we talked about differences between male and females. There's a lot of studies that shows that language change is stronger in women than in men. And if you want to know how people speak in 10 or 20 years, you have to listen to the urban uh, female language user. Mm. So young, educated women in cities have a very progressive novel way of talking. There's one funny example, it's called um, vocal fry in mm. American English. So prime example is Britney Spears and Zoe Deschanel and they speak like this with a very you know <laughs> if, if you have this sort of the, the nasally yeah and the f f um, sort of a, there's a flu f uh, f um, 
the fluidity of the sounds is a bit is the creaky voice it's sort mm -hmm. of a fry uh, this yeah 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 and um this you can show spread it to almost all young women speaking mm -hmm. english in in the us and um the opposite it's called norm mm -hmm. it's the non mobile older rural male <laughs> it's a term from linguistics mm -hmm. so if you want to know how people used to speak yeah 40 years ago you have to go to the countryside <laughs> and speak with older men because they don't change they mm -hmm. they use the same vocabulary and intonation they used before and i think this is sort of um social contagion it's mm -hmm. not conscious but it's a very strong um a mechanism mm -hmm. that changes language just by you want to sh show or feel that you're connected to the cool group and the progressive mm. group and so w women are is young educated yeah. urban women are sort of the drivers of culture yeah. then uh, the at least the drivers of language change mm. yeah. it makes you wonder when people talk about uh whether we have a patriarchy or you know if, if there are these sort of hidden drivers of where the culture yeah. is going um, yeah I wanted to jump back into the topic just to end off of bullshit and what impact it has on our yeah. society. So, so just two quick questions. The first is, what impact does bullshit have on democracy? And the second, they sort of can be coupled together. America is sort of an experiment, right? It's this this diverse mixing pot people call it yeah. of cultures yeah it's and not politically correct to say melting pot <laughs> okay uh, what's the, the correct i think term? salad bowl is okay more. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a it's a salad bowl uh it's <laughs> uh, of cultures and so one thing i worry about is you mentioned that there's this divisiveness this so maybe in the in western europe there's not the division isn't real it's just perceived but in america you sort of mentioned that it may be more real yeah. and so, so my question is is this worrying moving forward for humanity if our key experiment of multiculturalism and getting on together in diversity um at least our key modern one appears along certain lines to be fracturing yeah so um i asked the first question first sure. so i'll remind you if you forget yeah <laughs> the bullshit so the question about is bullshit a problem so if you do politics very rough answer if you do politics you have to do two things you have to do uh, make an assessment of how the world is like so the facts and then you have you need something like a normative agenda like a political agenda what you want to change mm. and if you don't have the facts about housing uh, taxes mm -hmm. income uh, employment or uh, climate change for that matter you cannot address these problems by making changes in your politics because you don't have any basis on making things better so even if you have imposing parties with different normative agendas they have to agree upon basic facts have to agree upon this is the housing market and then one party says we need stabilized rent and the other says no we need more we have to build more houses mm. in the next says whatever um, so and in a world where bullshit prevails if you cannot sort of 
agree on the facts and everybody is just saying what they want to say, you cannot really have a, a real democracy and a real state and change the conditions of uh, of the society. So I think this is sort of a very short and rough answer. And then the second question was about um, experiment. the experiment. There's a there's this recent book by Yasha Munk. I don't know if, if you have Another seen name. it. Uh, it's actually called The Great Experiment, and it's about multiculturalism. And the I mean, uh, so many aspects in it. But mm. one idea is that in overall, it it worked out pretty well. So imagine bringing people together from all over the world, different religions, and America is quite a successful country. I mean, and of course you have inequality and many problems, but on average um, people, it, it seems to work quite well, although of course there are all these problems. So in a sense, I think um, it's an experiment that can work out pretty well. And um, maybe one polarization could be um, impediment towards this development uh, but I'd say on average in many respects if you look at the development almost all over the world the world is getting better in the moral and social sense so we have not only higher life expectancy than 120 years ago we have more democracies although there's a dent within the last 20 or 25 years mm. but now still more countries are mm. democracy than in the 80s um, people have um, liberal outviews on the world. Um, poverty is getting smaller, although it's still mm. pretty large overall. But every day, 100,000 people ex escape extreme poverty, for example. And uh, so in many respects, the world is getting better and the people are getting along. For example, in Germany, the um, homicide rate um, halved within the last 30 years. So there were about 5,000 uh, manslaughter and homicide took, taken together in the 90s, and now it's 2,500, mm. it's almost half of it. So people are more um, peaceful and mm. can live together in a, a better sense. But also in a sense, you're right, that I think America is in, in, in a way, a not a role model, but sort of an, um, a showcase experiment mm. because many countries now in the West, for example, like Germany, who used to define their national belonging by um, ethnicity mm. or at least by their sort of uh, parental lineage are now, if you look at them correctly, in fact, migration states. Mm -hmm. So where people in Germany almost uh, more than 25%, I think 27 or so, uh, now have a migration background and it will increase. So uh, I think most of the European countries will become like America, countries where a lot of immigrants come from all mm -hmm. over the world and they will be this melting pot, salad bowl, whatever mm -hmm. metaphor you want to use for this situations. And we can sort of learn from mm from the American experience. There's its sociologist Putnam, I think I Robert, Robert, Robert Putnam, mm. and he made this one study, study that's very often cited that in the beginning when you have different groups, people are more, there's more rivalry and they, people don't cooperate together. So that's sort of 
situation is get, getting a little worse when you have uh, multiculturalism, but then in the end, after a while, it's getting above average. So he, he has these examples that, for example, in the US, most of the um, great successes in, in the sciences, uh, the arts, hmm. uh, Academy Award winnings, Grammys, uh, National Science Foundation medals and so on go uh, to a high proportion to immigrants. So it's really, um, hmm. uh, and trust for example in communities goes down if you have a lot of immigrants, but after a while it gets up hmm. again. So yeah, we have to yeah, have to see how this experiment uh, goes out, but I think it's, uh, it comes out, but I think it's, uh, we have there's a lot of evidence showing that it sort of can work well. But you have to push through the other side almost. Yeah, you have to push to the other side. And you have, of course, you need also you need education. I mean, you have to educate people in accepting the others. But even if you look at these, um, we s talked about social dominance orientation. In German, it's called Gruppenbezogene Menschenfeindlichkeit. So if people are derogative towards people who of other groups, say um, homosexuals or Jews or... Muslims or uh, women, foreigners, there are about like 15 groups who are typically discriminated by a small mm -hmm. fraction of the society. And even these tendencies go down. People become more cosmopolitan, mm -hmm. even on the right-hand side. So that's the overall trend. It's not an automatic trend, but I think it's um, there's some evidence that it will go on. And uh, for example, in a recent paper I just read, um, the attitudes towards uh, racial equality mm. got better even during the Trump era. Oh, so yeah. there was a trend that was not stopped or reversed by Trump, although he might have activated a small group on the right-hand side, but the mm. overall attitude toward equality continued uh, in the US. Which is a very promising sign moving yeah. forward. And which might show us if you look at these papers, shows that we tend to over-exaggerate the differences mm. by the media differences or by the Twitter shitstorms we see and not by the available data from sort of solid social science research. So on that topic then, what sort of legal restrictions or movements do you think should be made towards companies that sort of promote bullshit. So for example, Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or any social media site yeah. that promotes or, or earns money from bullshit. Should there be sort of like uh, with cigarettes or something where, where there's this tax associated with the, the harm that's caused to society? Yeah. So of course the platform is responsible uh, for what is shared on the platform. They are not responsible in the sense that they have shared it, but they have, mm. they, I mean, in, in Europe they are now forced to uh, remove certain content that's hateful or um, um, discriminating against certain groups. Um, but uh, what can you do, like technically, that's another question. And there's there are some apps now that show you that a content could be bullshit or fake news. Mm. And I think this is a very good technical support because it doesn't tell you it's fake, but it just reminds you, maybe you check the sources. Mm. And this is sort of just a little reminder that put on your attention, because mm. when we have high attention and high alert, 
we are pretty good at distinguishing real news from fake news, not all of them, but mm. many of them. And we can check for the sources. But people, if they are sort of doom scrolling, the attention is sort of on, on half the level, mm. or, they lower. Tend, or <laughs> even lower, <laughs> they uh, tend not to do it. Yeah. So it's, I think uh, such a reminder is good, but I, um, there were some ideas of having something like a ministry of truth. Mm. Um, that sounds a bit Orwellian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was called differently, but if you put it Orwellian, you see, immediately see the danger that um, truth or what is knowledge is something that is not um, relative to uh, different people. I mean, it's mm. sort of either something is true or is false. But the way we find it out is sort of an interpersonal enterprise by using mm. signs and evidence and so on. And you cannot give this task to a mm. single um, entity, let alone a state entity. I mean, you need uh, the, as Habermas would say, the, the public that exchanges ideas and scientists and politicians lay people, everybody has to participate in this mm -hmm. uh, public debate and then sooner or later the important facts will come out and will be established as opposed to uh, the fake news. And uh, this is why I think, and I sort of proposed this in my book, you have a certain responsibility mm -hmm. as an individual. So you cannot wait for the state to solve mm -hmm. the problem and, and the idea of enlightenment was always that you as an autonomous person are responsible for your thoughts and your mm. ideas and your beliefs. And you cannot uh, exchange one dogma, the dogma of religion of another dogma, the dogma of the state. So you have to think by yourself as Immanuel Kant would have put it. And that's, this is why I think you sh we need more um, education in school and university of all these biases we talked about, hindsight bias, availability bias, mm. um, confusion of causation and correlation. We need more knowledge of statistics. We need in general a, a more scientific outlook because we are more um, confronted with data from the sciences. We have still have a society that values humanities a bit more. Uh, we talk more about theater and literature and um, film and art, which is fine, but we also need an education, even if we are not working in the sciences, in scientific thinking, for example, in basic laws of statistics. Uh, we, we have to know that we cannot infer from anecdotal evidence to, to a whole theory. We have to know that one single example doesn't falsify a whole theory. One cold winter doesn't falsify the claim that there's man-made human-made climate change. So these sort of, and I think all these biases, I mean, there are about 250 or so, which are now singled out in psychology. And you cannot learn all of them, but sort of the major biases, confirmation bias, for example, that you always want to confirm your views. And my side bias, you want to confirm them, especially if you have a certain um, ide ideological or political agenda. All these biases you have to reflect, otherwise you fall prey to these mm. sort of sh mental shortcuts. And I call it bullshit resistance. That's sort of the name of the book. And I think this is sort of a package of critical thinking or media 
savviness. I mean, you could call it whatever you want, but in the end, it's sort of a um, like a like a, a, a toolbox mm. that inoculates you against all kinds of bullshit. Let me finish by asking you. What's your outlook? Do you, do, you, do you have a positive view of where humanity is going? Do you, do you think, you know, we've talked about bullshit, we've talked about uh, the problems that can arise with morality driving people against their individual ethics. And, but just generally speaking, when it comes to the way people interact with each other, the, the, the way the world is moving, whether we're gonna be able to, you know, come together as you know, humanity. And, yeah. as a, do you have a positive outlook? Uh, it's a tough question. So for my nature, I'm not super optimistic. And um, the data show everything is getting better. But every time I look in social, uh, at the social media discourse and the way this sort of is then reflected in the media and in journalism, um, I start getting skeptical about whether it's getting better. So maybe it's getting worse within the next 10 or 15 years and then after a while it's getting better. It's really hard to say. The one sort of uh, silver lining for me is uh, we are here at the University of the Arts and I give seminars. And I always ask in, in the seminars, sometimes we always talk, we, we also talk about digitalization or social media and exactly the questions you are asking and the effects. And many of the students around 20 don't use social media. And mm. for me, it was really a surprise. I mean, it's of, sort of, it's, mm. it's also a bias because of selection bias. I don't know whether it's representative for the whole student body. But um, my impression is many of the students are more aware of the dangers of social media or digital media in general, are more, um, how could you say, more, they're digital natives rather yeah than but but they're really like like that like meta natives so yeah. i'm i'm in a sense i mean not technically i'm not a digital native i'm too old for that but i grew up when i was mm. i got my first computer when i was 12 or 13 so i also grew up with having access to computers but when it comes to social media i find myself sometimes uh, let me rephrase it sometimes when i hear the 20 year old students talking i think they're more adult Mm -hmm. when it comes about the dangers and the effects of social media than I am or most of the people of my generation and even the millennials they are now in their 30s mm. and I find it very strange they say something like if I have social media I always compare myself to others but I have projects and I cannot only focus on the projects if I don't do this mm. and it makes you unhappy or you always want to present yourself I, I want to work on something I want to achieve something so it's really interesting to see this outlook because I sometimes I wish I were so strong <laughs> and and <laughs> determined as they are when they at least when they say as at least as they present themselves that sounds like a positive outlook yeah to it <laughs> good Philip Hewell it's been an absolute pleasure uh, thanks thank you for coming on the podcast yeah thank you for having me <laughs>